go to college. You may go to school. You may have a pink Cadillac, but don't you be nobody's fool. Now, baby, come back, baby, come back. Come back, baby, come back. Come back, baby. Come back, baby. Come back, baby. I want to play house with you. Well, listen to me, baby. What I'm talking about. Come on back to me, little girl, so we can play some house now, baby. Come on back, baby. Come back, baby, baby. Come on back. I want to play house with you. Well, this is one thing, baby What I want you to know Come on back, let's play a little house And act like we did before Now, baby, come back, baby, come back Come back, baby, come back Come on, baby, I want to play house And welcome to this very special bonus edition of the Quantum Leap podcast. Uh, apparently, I was taking up far too much time in the original show, so Chris has decided to give us our own show. Joining mm-hmm. us, uh, we have <laughs> Zoe Dean, Leslie Wentzel, and like a rose between two thorns, I'm Hayden McQueenie. <laughs> uh, Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we really hope that you uh, enjoy this show. We really hope it works out. We also have a few awesome things coming up. We have the return of the Dean's List, thanks to uh, Zoe. And which um, Dean Stockwell work will you be doing today? I will be doing Compulsion. I tried to watch about the first 15 minutes of that last night so I'd have something to talk about, but I fell asleep. So oh, you no. <laughs> <laughs> Not because it was boring, it was just I was very, very tired. So, so you and uh-huh. Leslie will have a great time talking about that after the segment, I'm sure. And I'll go on. I, I can resonate up. with the tiredness. And we also have an amazing interview with Laura Harrington. And she Ooh. is one of the veterans of Quantum Leap. She was in two very awesome episodes. She was in Jimmy and also Deliver Us from Evil. In Jimmy, she played Connie. And in Deliver Us from Evil, she played Connie in inverted commas. I don't know if you could hear my inverted commas that I was making. So Chris had an amazing interview with her, and I really cannot wait to hear it myself. And as always, uh, we're not going to shy away from the really big issues, so all our listeners better grab their quantum lube because we'll be going quantum deep. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) But we're talking about 
private dancer. We've all seen this episode, and I think we all like at least parts of this episode. Zoe, what are some of your initial impressions or thoughts that you'd like to share? Um, well, I loved it. it. It's one of my more favorite episodes of the entire series. I really liked the dynamic between Diana and Sam. I enjoyed the dancing aspect a lot. I've always loved dancing in movies and TV, especially modern dancing with, you know, the, the stuff that they did in the, the 70s and the 80s. You know, a lot of the stuff that they did in the show I really loved, was very impressed by. And I liked the fact that it has a hopeful message to it that even if you have something getting in your way, you can still achieve your dreams the way that Diana did, still being able to become a professional dancer despite being deaf. I loved that aspect of it. It gives you a lot of hope where you need it. Great. Yeah, I agree with some of what you said, and I disagree with some of what you said, so we're going to have a lot to talk about. <laughs> uh, what do you think, Leslie? Oh, I I did love the episode as well. To an extent, I agree with a lot of what Zoe said. I love the dynamic between Diane and Sam. And one of the things about this episode that I really enjoyed, which pretty much encompasses the whole series, is that Sam and Al are on the same page. They're trying to do good. They're trying to change things for the better, but they don't always have the same idea as to how to go about it. Because Al is telling Sam, you're going to push her and she's going to fail. And Don and Deborah could have easily had Sam as the genius just be right all the time. But it kind of bounced back and forth between between the two of them that sometimes it was Al's idea that was the right way to go about it. And sometimes it was Sam's idea. And this followed the show throughout all five seasons. In, in this case, he was right. And I like how he was basically treating... Diana the way she wanted to be treated by not not treating her with kid gloves when she was starting to use her disability as an excuse and he stopped her and he said that's a lie and you know it so that was one of my mm. favorite things about the episode off the bat I do like this episode I do think it's a very good episode and very entertaining but I do have a lot of bones to pick about it but despite its flaws I'll still take it warts and all I like to start with the good we will get into the good, the bad, and the ugly, and there is some real ugly in this episode. That's not what but, you did there. <laughs> but start with the good. First of all, the character of Diana. I really love Diana. I mean, even if she wasn't deaf, she still personifies a strong, independent woman who really makes you feel like she can do everything and anything that she does put her mind to. And the fact that she has a disability as well, she also shows just how people with a disability can still be independent and can still contribute to society. I really do love Diana's character. Did make me wonder, though, and maybe you'd like to jump in here, but uh, where do you think her pride actually came from? Personally, I feel like it kind of came from just having to care for herself for such a long period of time and having no one to lean on. And then suddenly having this guy just come out of nowhere, you know, I don't know you, who do you think you are trying to control my life type attitude. I personally have experienced in life where after you're independent for a while, when somebody comes into your life, even if you do need help at that particular point, there's always a little bit of a barrier where you're like, hey, you're not my mom. Why are you telling me what to do? And 
there's an automatic kind of insult feeling there and a proudness. So you think she probably would be seeing it as a sign of weakness if she accepted help where she thinks she doesn't really need it? Yeah. I actually thought along the same lines as well. Um, What about you, Leslie? Yeah, that's pretty much what I was going to say. She perceived charity as a sign of weakness. So uh, it was just out of the question for her to accept any help from anyone. We'll come back to that point a little later because it does lead into one of the bones that I want to pick. But something else really good in terms of characterization in the episode was the character of Joanna. First of all, she has a fantastic progression through the episode, going from someone who is very scared about letting someone into her crew who she thinks that will end up being left behind, but eventually realizing, no, she has so much talent, we need to help this grow. And that's really what an educator does. They really try to help bring out what there is in a person. And, uh, mm-hmm. and hopefully, um, the people that you do help will help bring something out in you as well. So I really love Joanna's character. And the other thing I really liked about Joanna was the fact that she was so freely expressing her sexuality. You don't really see that a lot in TV, but you see it a lot in real life. So I thought it was a very realistic representation of what a young woman would have been like back in the 1970s. Yeah, I agree with that. That dance sequence um, at the beginning of the episode, it just looked like, um, I can't remember the name of the actress to play Joanna, but it was just incredible. That's one of the most fun things that I've seen in season three, because it looked like she and Scott were legitimately having a great time doing it. And it was so much fun to watch. And I basically, I agree with what you said about her. And it's funny too, because if I'm not mistaken, the hate that Sam expresses for the seventies for that particular decade that's actually how Scott feels about it. But then you see him dancing to disco like nobody's business. And it was just so much fun to watch. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Debbie Allen was um, who played Joanna, by the way. Very, very famous dancer. And also the director of the episode. Yeah. Okay, I don't feel silly at all now. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. For the longest time, I thought that Debbie Allen was Diana, not Joanna. <laughs> But uh, Chris had a fantastic interview with Debbie Allen as well. We all had a fantastic time listening to it. So I I absolutely love Joanna's character. And what you were saying, Leslie, about the dancing, that also really made the episode for me as well, because you don't get to see a lot of dancing in Quantum Leap. And it also is really surprising just how well a deaf person can dance, just how she's able to do it from feeling the rhythm. Yeah, she was a tremendous dancer. I just, I loved her. I loved how she explained why she was able to do it, just just Mm. feeling the bass. All right, one more thing that I really enjoyed was the red herring in the episode. So all along, it was believed that it was Mario who led Diana down the path of prostitution when actually it was Valerie. And despite the fact that Mario really did have the look of someone sleazy, I actually think Mario is one of the better people in the entire episode because he was running a legitimate business and I do believe that he would have taken care of Diana. He himself said he was happy to discover that he was an equal opportunity employer. Yeah, I kind, I kind of agree with that as well. Yeah. Yeah, so very, very interesting that they would 
put the role of the pimp on the person who looks so much like the backbone of the business and someone who really looks like they're above all of that. To be honest, I really think that's more realistic as well because no one would deal with someone who looks particularly sleazy. True. Don't judge a book by its cover um, adage. We might get into a little bit of the bad now, but this also leads into something else I wanted to talk about. One of the things that I wasn't particularly happy about was the conclusion of the episode because it really went against the narrative that the episode was trying to put forward. Ultimately, they showed that a strong, independent woman with a disability does need to be helped by a man. If I was writing the episode, I would have preferred to have seen the resolution be from Diana's own actions and talent rather than Sam's continual intervention. And that actually kind of (laughs) got my mind moving a little bit. And I actually found this episode has striking similarities to the 1995 cult classic film Showgirls. Have either of you seen that? No, I haven't seen it, but I've seen enough YouTube reviews of it. Plus, one of my favorite singing comedian types actually has a teeny tiny little part in it, Stephen Lynch. <laughs> so oh, I don't cool. know it. But, but yeah, he, he, yeah, he was in like the bar scene or something. For anybody who doesn't know who he is, think Bo Burnham. He's along those lines. Cool. The big comparison is the fact that in Showgirls and in Private Dancer, there's a young woman who has dreams of becoming a showgirl. Now, Mind you, that's in the context of, you know, a a dancer, not so much a stripper, which I know that word is often associated with now, probably because of the movie. But the woman does have to dance as a stripper in order to be discovered. Thankfully, I think Private Dancer does a better job of not judging her for her actions, whereas in Showgirls, she's treated like a complete prostitute, even just for the fact that she was dancing and happened to be naked during it. Yeah, it made me wonder whether or not this particular episode did inspire that movie. Who knows? Well, uh, Hayden, actually, while I'm thinking of it, I guess you could make the argument that if the lives of everyone in this series had gone, you know, the way they were supposed to go, if, if everybody had a happy ending, then Sam and Al would be there in the first place. So it's not so much, oh, a man had to rescue her, it's Sam's there to put right what once went wrong. Although I'm not saying I don't understand where you're coming from. Because I could, you know, being a a woman, I could easily say, oh, well, how dare they? You know, but then again, they had one of the most independent women um, co-producing and co-writing, you know, our lovely Miss Deborah Pratt there. Uh, So I'm sure they took that into consideration. That's true. Definitely Sam does have to intervene somehow, but I don't know. I just think that it went overboard. I think that maybe he could have just set her on a better path so that she could help herself. Uh, That's what's something that I think I would have preferred. So maybe, okay, this actually leads into something else that I really disliked in the episode, and that was Sam's behavior. I actually really don't like Sam in this episode, and I don't like Al much either. And that's because, and that's because of how they are basically taking control of what Diana can do with her body. It's Diana's body. If she feels like she needs to get ahead by stripping, then she should be able to do it. More power to her, in my opinion. Sam had no right to tell Mario that Diana wouldn't do any stripping jobs for him. And ultimately, he could have made things a lot worse for Diana. I mean, Diana was homeless. She had barely any money. She couldn't live on tips. If she had done some stripping work, she probably would have easily been able to get back on her feet. 
Now, yes, I know she did go down the path of prostitution, which they everyone says is the wrong one. But like I said, Mario is one of the better characters in the episode. He probably would have taken care of her a lot better. And this is kind of where this connection to Showgirls came about in my head, because in my little head canon, Diana would have gone back to Mario and said, no, I want to do some stripping jobs. But then during one of her shows, she does such an awesome job with her dancing and Sam and Joanna happen to be there. And Joanna realizes, no, she her dancing talent is fantastic. There's no way she can let her pass. And then it's a way that Diana could have kind of resolved the issues for herself. But yeah, I just really dislike how Sam takes it upon himself to decide what Diana does with her own body. That's interesting. Um, I can't say that I that I disagree with you there. Although I think that what this episode was trying to do is to show that in her case, it turns out to be the wrong thing for her to do because she ends up in the original history. Does she doesn't she end up dying of AIDS in the 80s? You've got it exactly right. Diana did die of AIDS in the 80s, but that was because of the prostitution she was doing, not from the stripping. Right. Good point. I can't say I disagree, although I can't say that it made me dislike Sam and Al in the episode, although I do understand where your opinion is coming from, that maybe that part of the episode could have been handled a little bit better. And you're right, actually, no one one has the right to tell her what she can and can't do with her body. And they, I think they tried to address that because Diana turns around to uh, Sam, whom she sees as Rod, and says, you strip. And they kind of sort of copped out a little bit on this part. So I guess I'm sure I'm kind of agreeing with you to an extent. I wouldn't say I really disliked either one of them, but his response to that was, I se- I'm selling an illusion. It's not me. So I guess yeah. there were there were some things that could have been ironed out a little bit better, perhaps. Yeah. So I'm, I'm yeah. not going to say I disagree with you. Not completely. Yeah. Well, you know what? It, I think this is the only episode that I can think of where I dislike Sam's behavior. And I honestly can't think of another case where something that he does or something that Al tells him to do actually really grates me. Be very interested to hear Zoe's thoughts on what I said. Well, I, as far as this episode is concerned, I agree with Leslie for the most part. I didn't really dislike the way either one of them handled things. I did agree with her and with you in the sense of what you said about only she has the right to decide what she does with her body and her own self. But in the sense that we see in the beginning of the episode that her choices ultimately lead her down the wrong path before Sam comes and helps out... And she ends up in a better place than she would have done prior without him. I personally feel that nothing wrong was done in this episode by either one of them. In the sense that they did cop out a little bit. I I do remember when I was watching it at first, I was like, um, you know, he is kind of being a hypocrite. (laughs) But such a hypocrite. They did they yeah, they did they they ironed it out a little. They did sort of more cop out than they did iron it out. But even so, what Sam said, he had a good point that in that particular case, he was selling an illusion. It wasn't actually him because it wasn't actually Rod the Bod speaking to her at that point. It was Sam. And Well, that's um, a good point. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, you're exactly right. He might have just been talking from his own point of view. So yeah, I'm with Leslie very much so in her opinion on that particular episode. But as far as what you said 
with like other episodes where you couldn't really find anything wrong with the way that Sam acted, I can think of several where he just royally ticks me off. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to give some examples? Um, the Curse of Tahotep Ooh, being one of yes. them. I can't watch that episode. I, I can literally <laughs> hate, I hate his attitude. He craps all over Al during the entire episode. He is the definition of a rotten friend in that episode. To the 20th power. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Actually, one that comes to mind for me now is the leap home. I mean, this is only one leap after he told Al, no, you can't be with your wife. But then he decides he's going to try and change all of his own past. Yeah, he annoyed me in that episode, too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I agree with that. But that kind of leads into one other thing I want to talk about, and you've touched upon it a little bit, just the shocking level of hypocrisy in this episode. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody judges Sam or Rod the Bod for being a stripper. Nobody judges Mario for running a strip club and hosting bachelor parties. And I mean, nobody even judges Valerie for pimping out young girls. I mean, Sam himself even says, I'm not going to judge you for how you live your life, but it could affect Diana's. But yet everybody judges Mm. Diana for what she's trying to do just to be able to survive. The story did seem to be very one-sided and slightly sexist. I did notice that. Yeah, I think we'll definitely get into some more of these really ugly issues once we get into the Quantum Deep segment. (laughs) Da-da-dun! I actually kind of thought of one of uh, one of Chris's editorials. Obviously, I'm not trying to crap all over him. I love his segments, but there were so many depressing episodes, like Black on White on Fire, for example. I think that there was an actual kind of good balance, because it kind of was a drama. You can't expect every story to be like an episode of Seinfeld. And yes, I said that because of uh, the, the actress who played Valerie also played George <laughs> Stanza's fiance. The two shows shared so many guest stars. But I think there was a there was a pretty good balance of lighter episodes that followed. But there were there were some kind of heavy hitters, especially in season two and definitely in season three. Awesome. All right. Well, I think this might be a good opportunity for us to lead towards having a break, but I actually have an activity for the two of you and for all our listeners. And then we'll have a bit of a break and we'll go to Laura Harrington's interview. And if you can multitask, you can have a little bit of a go of the activity at the same time. So we've got something to talk about in Quantum Deep. But here's the scenario. It's not a nice scenario at all, but It is a very, very powerful activity, and you can use it to kind of help you to make some decisions based on any sort of contentious issue. The scenario is, several hundred years ago, there was a baroness. Now, she was constantly mentally and physically abused by her husband, the wealthy baron, and he threatened that if the baroness ever tried to leave him, she would be killed. One night, after a particularly violent beating, the baroness ran away. Needing help, she went to some friends. One friend refused to help, afraid that if she was found out, that she would be killed as well in retaliation. Another friend told the Baroness, You are married to your husband. I believe in the sanctity of marriage, and I will not go against my beliefs to help you to end yours. And so she turns the Baroness away as well. Getting desperate, the Baroness asks a stranger for help. The stranger agrees to help for payment. But as the Baroness had run away in a hurry, she did not have any money, and so the stranger refused to do anything. 
The Baroness finds a police officer. She asks for protection, but the officer tells her, I cannot help you. You are your husband's property. He can do as he wishes with his property. With nowhere else to go, the Baroness returns to the castle to beg for forgiveness. The guard, under orders to kill the Baroness if she returned, unsheathed his sword and beheaded her. So, a really horrible scenario, but the activity is to rank the seven people in the story. The Baron, the Baroness, the guard, the policeman, the stranger, and the two friends. The activity is to rank them as to who is most responsible and least responsible for her death. And with that, we'll go to a break. You're an educator first, but also a disciplinarian and a humanitarian. You need the energy of youth and the wisdom of age. You have to be a mediator and above all, a friend. The more you think about the roles our teachers must play, the more you know they deserve our applause. Thanks for that, Scott. I couldn't agree with you more. Hey, Leapers, it's Hayden McQueenie here. Um, I'm actually a teacher. Uh, I teach mathematics. I'm an experienced tutor as well. I'm currently teaching engineering maths at RMIT University and doing a lot of private tutoring as well. I've recently started tutoring online. So if anybody in any year level, so primary, secondary or tertiary, needs any assistance with their mathematics, by all means, send me an email. Uh, My email is Hayden. H-A-Y-D-E-N dot McQueenie, M-C-Q-U-E-E-N-I-E at R-M-I-T dot E-D-U dot A-U. If you want to know a little bit about my qualifications, I have a Bachelor of Applied Science in Mathematics. I also have a Diploma of Education and a Master of Education. I've been teaching in secondary and tertiary schools for many years. And I'm also the numeracy curriculum developer at the Technology Institute of Victoria, as well as a five-time presenter at the Mathematical Association of Victoria Conference. So I'm pretty sure I can help you out with your maths. Send me an email and we'll discuss how I can help you out. So once again, that email is Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N dot McQueenie, M-C-Q-U-E-E-N-I-E at rmit.edu.au. I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, What branch of physics deals with the subdivision of radiant energy into finite (laughs) particles? Blackula. Uh, I don't know. Uh, That would have to be like uh, atomic fusion or something like that. Quantum. Quantum physics! Here we are, Miss Foster. You'll just have a seat. We can begin your interview. Thank you very much, Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell. (laughs) Save yourself the trouble. No quantum leap jokes. This is Ann Walker, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Okay, we're back from our break, and now we have the interview with Laura Harrington.
Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Laura. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, you have the distinction of being one of only a handful of guest actors who got to reprise a role on Quantum Leap, that of Connie Lamada, in the season two episode, Jimmy, and again in the season five episode, Deliver Us From Evil. So can you tell us a little bit how you landed the role and how you got involved with Quantum Leap? Well, I auditioned for it, and I remember really identifying with the character, liking the family. I thought it was really human episode, so the first episode I was cast in. And then I think it was fans. People really liked Connie and that family and that and the episode of Jimmy. And I think that's why that role was reprised. Oh, really? And I, I imagine playing Connie was kind of walking a tricky line because... You were ostensibly the antagonist of that first episode of Jimmy, where and you had mm-hmm. to treat Jimmy very poorly, yet you had yes. to come across as sympathetic. So I, I think you pulled it off, but how did this or did any of this factor into how you approached the character? A lot of it did. And I think, you know, I was really blessed because um, John DeQuino was so, he was such a good husband, <laughs> he <Yeah>. was so <laughs> attentive to Connie. So it was easy to be that side of her and, you know, loving her family and loving her son and then having so much fear of the other. But the funny thing was that Brad Silverman, who played Jimmy, was um, instantly not fooled by me being a bad guy. (laughs) So every time I came onto the set, he'd say, I love Laura and Laura loved me and (laughs) <laughs> All of, so it was just almost impossible when he was in the room to sustain that character, which was, um, so that was the biggest challenge. But I really like the way um, Connie tries so hard to hold on to her family and to protect her son. And um, I don't know, I just really identify with that character, the hostility towards the new and having to open to something different. Anyway, I thought it was a neat role to play. Yeah, and I you mentioned that chemistry that you had with John. I mean, you guys really did seem like a married couple in that kitchen scene, especially. And yeah, I just did you guys like just naturally click that way because it's uh, it's 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 not odd, but it's rare that you see right. two people that just jibe so naturally on screen. It really surprised me seeing the episode over again, just how much of a connection there was, and I think he was really. I think we set up the relationship that way that he, that he was extremely generous to me and to his, obviously to his brother. And I was the one that was um, holding back. So it created that sort of nice tension because obviously we were attracted and obviously there was a, a really solid relationship between us. And at the same time, it wasn't easy. There was sort of an uneasiness. And I thought our, the way we related to each other reflected that. Yeah, it came across very well on screen, and like I said, it was it, it was something you you guys pulled off terrifically. But how about um, working opposite Scott and Dean? What was that like? Well, they're just so. I mean, they, both of them um, are just such nice people. That's what I remember most strongly is just how, again, very generous, very warm, very enthusiastic, and I never felt you know I only felt. Like, um, they were there to make things as easy as possible on their, on their fellow actors and were completely obviously creators of the stories. 
in so many ways. So um, it just felt like very comfortable in their world. Well, that's good. We hear that a lot, especially um, about Scott, just what a, what a generous guy and what a great guy he was to work with. Um, I, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of a of a show where so many guest actors universally praise the staple actors in the series. And that's, that's, that's yeah. something that's, that's universal to my experience of interviewing quantum leap alumni. And it's, it's always nice to hear, you know, because it's nice to know that the show that you love and, and the person that you loved watching on that show was actually a genuinely good guy in real life too. Well, I think it's, you know, the show they chose to do is really reflective of them, that it's really about making life better and really on the set, they were the same way, just making everyone around them feel good, making the intention of the show feel like it was going to be a positive experience in terms of, I don't know, there's just never any dark energy at all. That's, that's cool. And that can happen on any set, you know, where where people, especially the stars of the show, can feel like they're hostile toward incoming actors. Right. Well. Um, yeah, I'm glad it didn't happen here. And it, it came across on screen. Everybody seemed to gel so well. And before I called you, I had a little bet with myself. Being a New Yorker, mm-hmm. I, I absolutely yes. adore Connie's New York accent. She sounds like she's straight out of the Bronx. <laughs> right. And I'm straight out of the Bronx. And I was wondering if that's something that you brought to the role since the family, I think, was supposed to live in California, in Oakland. Yeah. No, I did. I just figured that she was a transplant. <laughs> Oh, I love the scene about your mother's platter. <laughs> she was part of this Italian family, you know, family. I just saw them going out to California to kind of get their little house and their <laughs> new life going. And yeah, and I had just been recently, just before um, that, I, I mean, I moved to from New York to California in the 80s. So that voice was really in my head. Oh, okay. All right. So it was a little bit of a natural accent coming through. That's what, that's what I have to think. It just seems so natural. Yeah. 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 I can, I can, I can spot the fake ones from a mile away. So, um, <laughs> thank you for indulging me on that one. But, uh, no, no, you, no, no, no. It's a good question. <laughs> were you surprised when they called you back to reprise the role of Connie? Yeah, I was completely surprised because that's the one thing about reprisals is that, you know, you've gone on and you've, you, you haven't, you're kind of not thinking of picking up that character or seeing that family or being a part of it again. And then all of a sudden you're, you're dropped in. It's kind of fun. It was a little bit like being in quantum leap. Yeah. You know, I'm saying they <laughs> wanted the characters. Like, oh, I'm going back in time. <laughs> so yes. And I was disappointed that my character got stolen. Yeah. Now that's, that, that, that that's an interesting wrinkle because did you have to approach Connie as a different character in Deliverance from Evil, since you were actually playing Aaliyah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and it was, yeah, no, it was a completely different, you know, she, she's inhabited, so she's not, all the things that were sort of natural are now unnatural. Okay. Between, you know, within the marriage. So, and it was just, but, but it was an interesting almost a little traumatic to be taken over by another woman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like someone leaping okay. to you. Well, I, I guess, I mean, the, my natural question after that is which version of the character did you like playing better? Or do you have a preference? I really liked, you know, I, I like that it was easier to play the, um, 
the original Connie. That character was a little, was easier to play only because she was, um, you know, I just sort of fell into that world and w- wanted to create that family and felt very safe and at home. And then all of a sudden it was, uh, we were in crisis and I wasn't myself. Yeah. yeah with no time. chance of preserving things. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because um, once it, it, I was, I was kind of sad that we never got to see the original Connie um, after Sam discovered Aaliyah. There was never like when she, yeah. left, when she left out, she, you know, the, I, I wanted the other Connie to come back. I wanted real Connie to be, to be standing there saying what's going on or something. And I felt, um, you know, that's, that's more fan service kind of thing for me. Yeah. But would you have liked to have been able to do that? Oh, yes. I think it would have been better. I do. I think we should have, we should have real, it would have been fun to see the whole cycle. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, maybe, maybe one day we'll do an audio drama. Yeah. We'll, we'll do another it. one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll jump well, back in time and redo right. that whole thing. We'll leap, we'll leap back yet again to Connie. Connie, actually, it's funny. You're the, um, you're our Jimmy trifecta for this podcast because we've spoken to both John and Brad and now we have you. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, they've both appeared on the podcast. Well, you just mentioned that when you got the role on Quantum Leap, you had uh, recently moved from New York in the 80s out to California. So Connie's mm-hmm. journey that you gave her, her backstory that you gave her kind of mirrored yours. Can you tell us about that journey? How did you get started in acting? And what led you to make the leap out to the West Coast? I got started in acting because I went to Boston University for theater. And then um, the first job I got took me to New York because I got, um, I was on Broadway with Al Pacino in Richard III. And, um, and then from there, I did a couple of really well-received independent films when independent films weren't widely seen. Mm-hmm. So both of them I starred in and they, they both got really great reviews, et cetera. And so then the next thing was, um, I was flown several times back and forth from New York to Los Angeles to audition for films. And finally, one time I was just too cold <laughs> in New York. And so <laughs> Yeah, we've been there. We've all been there. I didn't <laughs> I didn't go back. And that was and that's how I got to California. It was just like <laughs> the weather was fine and it was February and the prospect of going back and um uh, in my cold apartment was too tough. So that's a really, I didn't, I I mean, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was clear that um, there were, there was a lot of work for me out here. And so I was really interested in being in film. And you kind of did it in a big way because shortly after Quantum Leap, anyway, shortly after the episode aired, you appeared in a starring role in the classic film, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Yes. And that was opposite Johnny Depp and Leo DiCaprio. So what was that like? That was fabulous. It was really kind of heaven because um, Lassa Hallstrom, well, first of all, you, there's a lot of that movie you don't see because Lassa shot a comedy tragedy. So we shot a lot of very funny scenes. And um, in the end, because of the nature, the, the way the, the film unfolded, he sort of made it a more serious film. So, and and then Lassa really loves improvisation. So, we just had a good time with each other. You know, they would, we would be called into scenes and just, you know, we could wing it 
we were following obviously very carefully a script, but we would also have these moments that we could just play. And I think that just, you know, for actors, that's really heaven that you have sort of a creative freedom and especially with those actors. And it was amazing to be there just to watch Leo become. I mean, he was so extraordinary in that role. And every day, you know, he was hanging out with a lot of kids who who were just like the kid he was playing in, in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. So um, just to watch him be such a perfect mimic and then bring real emotion to it, it was, it was really amazing. And then... On the, then there's Johnny, who is just probably the most sensitive and receptive actor. And then, of course, Darlene, who is no longer alive, which makes me very sad. She played the mother, right? Yeah, the mother, yeah. 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 And she was really exceptional, very warm, very bright, really courageous, very inspired all of us, really. Yeah, she 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 was amazing in that role. And what I loved about that movie is that you want to you want to say these days be cynical and say wow that's that's oscar bait but i think that was more in the vein of independent film tackling mm-hmm. sensitive issues in a quirky way before yeah. that became mainstream and exactly. I mean, you guys were right in the sweet spot of that and that that film is just exceptional it just holds up on every level yeah it surprises me how well it it holds up and then it was also you know it was also being out in austin Texas and the me it was it was it was just a gorgeous experience from beginning to end because the music was great in the at night we had really short days because um, Sven Nyquist was shooting the film and so um, and he was in the seventies so they just had to keep days really confined which is rare on a film so we actually did things like got sleep and. <laughs> 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 They could go out in the evening and have dinner, and you know, so it was quite, it was quite nice. Well, if we can, I want to cycle back even further than Quantum mm-hmm. Leap. Cycle back even further than Gilbert Grape, and um, okay, just indulge me here. I jumped at at the chance to interview you because this is the third podcast I've hosted, Quantum Leap podcast, but. Before this, I hosted a podcast called 112263, which was about time travelers trying to prevent oh the Kennedy assassination. God. And yeah. I, po- I, po- I, I hosted another one called Castle Rock TV Podcast, which was about Stephen King works. And right. on both of those podcasts, we covered things that you appeared in. Mm-hmm. We did a Time Loops episode on 1122 uh, about the short film 1201. Right, which was nominated. Yeah. That was nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah, Academy Award, right. And my partner Skip and I, we're watching it, and Kerwood Smith is in it, and we're talking about it. And I said, do you recognize that actress? And he said, I'm not sure. And he's a huge Quantum Leap fan. And I said, close your eyes and listen to her speak. And he said, oh, my God, that's Connie LaMotta. <laughs> so, so we saw you in that. So I'd, I'd like to ask you about shooting that because I know it was really well received. It, it, it was nominated. And then when we did our Castle Rock podcast, we did a whole show about Maximum Overdrive. And there you were again, front and center. I said, there's Laura. <laughs> Must be a new podcast. Here's Laura. Here she is again. So if if you would, I mean, can can you speak to, to either of those projects? 
Yeah, I mean, 1201 was really, I kind of got a lot of roles in a cluster. You know, so obviously it was just one day of shooting. But I, I knew when I met Kerwood that he was such an exceptional actor. And the script was really, you know, it was just well written. It was really an exciting piece. And, and, and it's funny because I did wish it were longer or more involved or, and it did become Groundhog Day. So it, it got its day in the, in the sun, but it was really a lovely experience. And, and then the, and then uh, in terms of Steven, that was a big deal that I was cast. I always feel a little guilty because I don't think I was great in that <laughs> movie, but <laughs> yeah, partially because it was just so unfamiliar with me for me the I'd been on the stage and doing all these sort of serious roles and and um it was working with special effects and stuff it was just not I, I was a little uncomfortable and I uh, as I say I feel like I should apologize to all the fans out there but I did love <laughs> I did love working with Steven a lot and he was uh you know that was his first time directing anything and mm. and he was uh you know, he was nervous. He used to start every day with his arms around his family. They would do this sort of little huddle. It was really charming. <laughs> and um, it was amazing. I, now, now looking back on it, I just think it's revolutionary because here we are. We're at the moment when all of our trucks and cars will be running on their own and hackable. Right. <laughs> right. And completely hackable. You think, you know, they, that piece wasn't in there. Was Maximum Overdrive your first leading role in a motion picture? No, that was my first leading role in sort of a major motion picture. I had done two leading roles in independent films before then that had gotten a lot of critical attention, but no one ever saw, which was sad. It was really sad. I mean, that was that was the day when there really wasn't a venue for independent films. Mm -hmm. They just didn't, you know, they didn't distribute them. Are those films available now for no, they're, to, to pick up? If they well, want? I hope, you know, maybe your listeners will um, encourage them to be released. I think both of them had similar problems. One was called City Girl by Martha Coolidge. And um, it's her first film. And then the other is Dark End of the Street um, by Jan Eagleson. And that film was reviewed insanely. I mean, really... Vincent Canby wrote about it four times. I mean, people really loved my performance in that film. I recall doing my research, uh, some of the, some, I just saw some promo stills. You looked like a tough street kid. Yeah, I was really a tough street kid. Yeah. And um, the, the, the thing that made that film exciting was that everybody that was my age, all the older actors were professionals, but everybody that was my age had grown up in uh, project housing in Cambridge. So they were the real thing. And then there was me who had to be, be, the, be them and, and blend with them. And so that was really exciting. It was an incredible challenge and I, I loved doing it. So, but yeah, that film doesn't, it remains undistributed because at the time it was made for so little money and the music that was put on the film, I think they don't really, they didn't have the rights for it. So I think I that see. until they kind of find music for it or re-put music on it, it can't be made public. 
Isn't that funny? That's a big issue that Quantum Leap fans have about the release of the series on DVD is the fact that they just couldn't afford the rights to all the music that appeared in the show. And there's a lot of music replacement. And uh, huh. man, that, that issue holds up more than what we love. It holds up a lot of stuff. Yeah, an odd it is really odd. And it seems like it should be somehow fixable. Right. It does. It seems like, but that is the shame about that film because you know it's a small film, but it's really a powerful film even even now. Well, I hope one day we're able to see it. And that was your first film. I mean, we can fast forward to one of your most recent films. You got to rejoin Al Pacino yeah. on on the big screen instead of on stage in Devil's Advocate. Did you guys, I'm trying to remember your scene. I remember that you were in one of the court scenes. Did you have a scene with, with Al Pacino? Yeah, in the court, we were together, but my scenes were mostly with Keanu. Okay. Okay. And what what was that like? Because that, that was a huge, huge hit. Yeah. Big. Yeah. It was really, what's funny is that's where my writing career began because I was writing a film about Fidel Castro actually for Taylor. And then since I was working with him, he said, will you play this role in the movie? Um, so I came to New York and I was writing <laughs> between takes, you know, so that was really funny. Right. <laughs> so I was doing both jobs at once. you're talking about the director Taylor. Taylor Hackford, yes, sorry. Yeah, Taylor Hackford, right. And um, I guess, yeah, that's that's a perfect segue because I did want to cycle out. I mean, you've you've since then, or very soon after that, it seems like you've turned your talents to writing. So how did you make that transition? Well, it's such a weird story because I wasn't really a writer. You know, I didn't write, I didn't write journals or, and I just wasn't a, it wasn't a a daily activity for me at all. And then it was actually during what's eating Gilbert grape that, um, I kind of started seeing films. I would have them, you know, and my, I would think about them. And then I think, wow, I'm having this film. So I, I need to find a writer. And someone said, no, no, I think that means you are a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to a writing class and I, I sort of thought, oh, I'm never going to do this. And the writing teacher thought, oh, she's never going to do this. I, I did know how to fix everybody else's films. And then the writing, the, the writing teacher one day said to me, you know, screamed at me that I couldn't just come and hang out in the class. <laughs> I actually had to write something. <laughs> so I did. I wrote this one of these visions I had and I, I read it and someone said, well, I, I wouldn't, this is a class where people would rip each other apart. And they said, I wouldn't change a single word. Oh, so wow. then I thought, well, that's something. And I went to my agency and I kind of snuck downstairs to the writer's reps whom I've never seen before. And I said, Hey, will someone read this? And then the next day I was signed. As a writer, and then my very first professional job, I wrote the script for Taylor. Taylor, yeah, I had written that on spec. But my first professional job was working for Martin Scorsese as a producer on a film called Mississippi Mud, which has actually gone through an incredibly long journey and looks like it's going to be made in the next year. Okay, and what? How long ago was that? Or when you say it's been on an incredible? That was journey. a long, long time ago. That was so long ago. Do you, do you care to elaborate? Or? Yeah, yeah, I can. <laughs> I can elaborate. So what happened was, I wrote it for Miramax, but then Miramax got purchased by Disney, and then it, the whole project got buried there. And then 
the Weinsteins left and an investor bought all of the Merrimax remaining Merrimax library. And then uh, an investor so loved my script that he went and sat down with them and pulled the script out so that they could produce it. So that was like, it was buried for almost 15 years. Wow. That's, you know, you hear Hollywood stories. <laughs> unfortunately, that seems to be, that seems to be a lot more common than you would think, right? I'm, I'm amazed that anybody can get anything produced in that. Yeah. Time. Well, usually when something gets, you know, when, when a studio goes down or there's a sale or usually at that point it becomes impossible. Things that aren't produced just never see the light of day. So this was sort of a miracle. It was really very exciting that it's happening. So, and then from that point on, so the other reason why I started writing is because I had twins and um, I didn't want to be on sets and traveling a lot. So I started writing and I was just lucky that it, it was a career that worked out. And so I've really been writing solidly. My kids are 22. So for 22 years. Wow. So tell us, um, if you'd like, what is your favorite writing project that you've worked on? Oh, well, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you that I have two different types of films that I work on. Either I like to do kind of really serious um, dramas about real people. For the most part, I get hired to do that. Often write that's the film, a project I'm working on right now. And, or I like to do huge fantasy and invented worlds. And so I have a kind of a split personality that way. For example, I was, I'm just being talked to about doing um series about a book called Weave World. Clive Barker. Yeah. Weave World. Mm-hmm. Oh, Clive Barker fans, listen up and, and rejoice. <laughs> it, really, it, was, it will be a lot of fun. That's all I can say. I look at that sort of thing and I think, yes, this is me. Right. <laughs> Needless to say, there are several films and projects that I've I've written or am developing about big sci-fi and fantasy projects. Is there any more you can tell us about Weave World? Is it just in its initial stages? Do you have a projected date on no, it? No, no, it's or? in its extremely initial stages. So, but it is something that, you know, is a possibility. It's something I'm looking at right now. And, and, um, and I really like the material a lot. I also understand that you're working on a screenplay now for the same company that produced the award-winning movie crash. Yes. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. It's a film based on actually a Yale law student's thesis about something that I never knew about called the American plan, which was a great idea of rounding up women during World War I so they wouldn't infect soldiers with STDs. But it was also part of that whole eugenics project of taking certain people out of the gene pool. So they just thought they would eliminate, you know, it's the same, it's that same crowd that's always trying to, um, regulate sexuality and so they they imprisoned women but not by the hundreds or the thousands but the, the hundreds of thousands and and it's something that i never knew about but in his particular case i'm following one particular woman because she actually sued them she went to court and so because her trial exists you you can see the detail of you know how she was she was absolutely 
not sexually experienced in any way. She was just targeted because her father had died. So, you know, a woman without a man in the house could go wayward. So they, but these women were destroyed. They were put into these detention centers and then the treatment was, you know, weekly injections of mercury. So you can imagine what that would do to a body. And then, um, so I wrote it like, you know, I'm writing it like a horror story. Just the horror of being targeted because you have pretty curls or someone's attracted to your smile or, you know, for minor things and then truly losing um, everything valuable in your life. And of course they would come out of these detention centers and be labeled as, as whores and therefore be able to, unable to get work or, you know, so it was truly devastating. Uh, In her case though, but the, the, the big shocking part of this story is that, um, well, maybe I shouldn't reveal the shocking part. I won't. Oh, no, that's it. You hear that, listener? So you're going to have to wait for the shocking reveal. Do you have a tentative name for the film? Is it called The American Plan? No, or? it's right now it's called The Trials of Nina McCall, but I don't think that will be its end title. I'm not sure. But that, that that's the name of the book, and uh, it's really fascinating. You'd think that something like this would have been more widely covered. Is this a historical or an epic in history that's just now starting to see a little bit of light? Yeah. It's, How was the speaking writer to writer? What was the research like on this? Because I know you probably had to dig up a lot of disturbing stuff. Well, I was blessed because the writer, the author of the thesis, he really kind of he landed on his discovery of the American plan because of looking at the trial, you know, these trials in American history. Hmm. And then he did this massive amount of research. So he was thinking, well, is it just in this one, this was in a little teeny town in Michigan. Um, was it just in this one little town? And then he, as he starts to research, you, you realize it was literally in every state, virtually every town across the country, especially in, in, and in major cities, and um, there's a lot of documentation that he uncovered. So I was able to look at real life stories of um, a lot of the women who were imprisoned. And it's just, you know, and then it gets it gets ever worse if they're women of color of any kind. It was open season on women. It, it, people, you know, if you had trouble with your wife, you could get her in, incarcerated, just accuse her of being loose in any way. And then she could be incarcerated or... So women were rounded up for very different reasons and horrifying reasons. And you just don't know, you know, the, what I think is shocking is, yeah, these stories just have been untold in American history. I never knew about it, but that's because really zero. I, I mean, I think until he started doing this research, no one knew about it. It's both fascinating and horrifying. Yeah, it has potential. That's that's an explosive potential for a project like that. I hope it progresses and we get to see. Well, I think you know. I think Kathy Shulman is a go-getter, and I'm writing a great script. So I think it has a high potential of being made and seen. Certainly, the lead leading roles are fantastic. Great parts. So that's a fascinating project. Are you working on anything else? Well, I just recently wrote a, wrote a series that is getting some legs about. Pirate Reed, who is um, was a 
you know, the documented in the, again in the historical record was a female pirate, although she wasn't seen, she wasn't known by other pirates as a woman. She was completely known as a man. And what's fascinating about her is that um, she kind of turns that gender issue on its head because she didn't choose to be a man. She was an illegitimate child and her mother's real husband died in war. Her brother, who was the legitimate child, died of the flu and then her mother was desperate. So she went to the grandmother and had her little girl dressed as the boy. So she grew up playing a boy from childhood and then she just took that into adulthood so she became a major soldier she fought both in the infantry and the cavalry and at sea and then finally she goes pirate so she's she's just a formidable and fascinating character and so i kind of designed the series in a way that we've never seen pirates which is really more it's more like a prison movie in a sense that instead of making them swashbuckling you know, fantasy figures really talking about the real people and what they were really like. A lot of, you know, for example, a lot of pirates went to sea because they were gay. And if you stayed on land, you'd be hung. Or, you know, they're counterculture in many ways. They're really fascinating people. And it really makes for a great, great series. It's very exciting. So do you envision this as, as a limited yeah. series or as an ongoing as a series? Limited, well, it's a limited series, but probably it, it probably will take two years to tell the story. Okay. Well, listen up, HBO. <laughs> <laughs> Game of Thrones is ending. You're going to need something good, and this sounds like it. <laughs> anyway, so those are, the, those are kind of the two things I've been working on this year. Well, that's great. I mean, that's they're all so amazing. Um, if you have, just off topic, if you have books that you can recommend – that I read about either of these things because I'm a big reader and both of these things seem like really fascinating. Yes, you can read. Um, the Ballad of Mary Reed is what I based the series on. It is extremely beautifully researched. So, and, and um, it just gave me a vision of pirates in a way I just had never imagined ever. So when I read the book, I got very excited about doing the series. So I wrote the first episode, which everybody's wowed by. But if you want to read this book, you'll learn a lot about this particular pirate ship and uh, the captain, which is his name is Rackham. And he's actually the pirate that um, Johnny based his character on. He was very colorful. Yeah, he loved to wear he loved to wear dresses. And crazy jackets, and uh, I call I I describe he was blonde. He had like wives, maybe fifty <laughs> wives around the world, and and so I call him the Kurt Cobain of. He was very much a rock star, and smart. There you go. Keep that in your mind's eye, right? <laughs> makes it makes it for a fun fun writing exercise. Then yeah, that's, no, that's no. Good. I that's, mean, he's I such like a fascinating character. So, but then and then I also just love the idea that you know when you he didn't emphasize this as much but i really became obsessed with it because you think even now if you're trans in any way or if you're discovered you're killed so often or raped or something horrible happens so the fact that she was able to be in in war and on the tight and these small ships and and remain in disguise is fascinating to me 
I have one more pivotal question oh. about your entertainment career. Yes. Did they make you sing in cop rock? Yes. Well, no. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> really? in, cop rock, in cop rock, I had a great song. And they hired me because I sang. And I sang that song. But then they um, handed it over to a true, like, real wailing rock star. And that is the one song <laughs> in the show. But yeah, you know, I, I got hired because I sang the song and they kind of adjusted it all for me. And then they decided to go in another direction. I won't take that as an insult. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just i just fascinated that series ever existed. So anytime I see someone in it, I just have to ask about it. So. It was kind of crazy. It was, a, it, was a cra- it was kind of a crazy good time, that show, to be in it. But yeah, it was was wild. That's a little bit wacky. Well, do you have any other memories from your time on Quantum Leap that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yeah, I remember Brad the most because it was such a significant thing and it still would be today. The more I think about it, it was just such a great thing that they hired um, a guy with Down syndrome to work on a, you know, on a professional basis. And he was very professional and um, so he, he, you know, he was unforgettable and that he really loved me. As I said, it made the shooting really difficult, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but even when, you know, he, if I took a break or whatever, he would want to talk to me and walk with me and um, share his life with me. And so I do remember him very strongly because I had never you know, I had never met anyone like him. So he really changed my mind about a lot of things. I mean, I was really converted like Connie in the show in a way to truly paying attention on a deep level to the lives of people I might not have thought about before. And I remember, you know, that scene between the sheets between John and I we're kind of, I'm outside and we're arguing Yes, yes. Right, that's in. Yeah, that that's in Deliverance from Evil. Yes. Yeah, I just there was something about we were shooting in San Pedro and we're right kind of on the cliffs over the sea and there's this sort of um that the kind of salty wind and the feeling of working with a really great as they said a really attentive, interesting actor. I don't know, I just I remember feeling lucky like really lucky in that, in those moments, like, um, and I remember the sound of the sheet. So those things are, are just central. And then the other thing that I had, I mean, I was very afraid about that last scene in Jimmy just because it's so emotional. You're talking about the, the court, the Corey drowning yeah. scene. That was, that's a, you know, can you elaborate what, what, what made you so afraid? Of well, it? just because, you know, you walk on a set and in television, things are really fast which is often why, you know, at least then, especially, you know, you're shooting really a lot of scenes a day and there's very little time. So either you have to, you know, you have to be emotionally prepared and go. So you you don't have a lot of time to get it right. So, you know, obviously the idea of losing a child is such a, you know, when you think about it, it, it's so terrifying. So I wanted to capture that and I, and I just rewatched it and I felt, I felt like it was there. I, you know, I, I, I'm happy about that, but it was really challenging because, you know, I didn't know if I was going to 
be able to walk on set and deliver that performance. Well, I think you did. And uh, I think most of the Quantum Leap fans would agree. And I'm sure that that's a big reason why they called you back and called the whole cast of that episode back. It is really a fan favorite. So you hold a special place in Quantum Leap lore and in Quantum Leap fandom. Oh, I'm so happy. So happy. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any any message for the Leapers out there? I'm impressed that there are people that know the, the show and love the show and are fans of the show. It really is nice to know. Yeah, it's an enduring fandom, and it's 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 a wonderfully kind and and really enthusiastic fandom. Yeah, and it's just always a treat to be able to speak to people like yourself and just kind of sharing it. You yeah, know? you know, I, I've gained a new appreciation for fandom because I realized that people really connect over the themes and things. And and when you think, as you say, when you think about that show, it is so loving when you kind of look back. I, I would imagine its fans are similar. I really love that they love the performance. It means a lot. Well, Laura, thank you so much for being on the Quantum Leap podcast. You've been very generous with your time, and we really appreciate Mm, it. Thank you. Zoe, this is one of my new favorite parts of the podcast because this is where you get to talk about the Dean's List. That's right. Yes. And this show is very important to me also because I get to talk about Dean, as you mentioned, and started, I think it was the summer of 2016, back when we first found out about Dean's, at the time, failing health. And it began as a way to bring more attention not only to Dean, but to his health and rally the fans together in a way to help him get better. And that, of course, started the prayer page for him and the Dean Stockwell Appreciation Society. And that eventually became the Dean's List podcast. So lots of wonderful things brought it about. And thankfully, Dean is fully recovered now. So there's a lot of happiness behind that history. You mention his name and people either don't know who he is or the only two things they associate him with are Quantum Leap and uh, Battlestar Galactica. And that's criminal, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, because his career spans over seven decades. And on that note, here is my segment of The Dean's List. We almost killed him. Drunk. We'd have known about it anyway. It would have been murder. Uh-huh. You know why I tried it, Jesse? Because I damn well felt like it. That's why. <laughs> Compulsion. Original theatrical release, April 1st, 1959. Starring Dean Stockwell as Judd Steiner, based on Nathan Leopold. Bradford Dillman as Artie Strauss, based on Richard Loeb. Orson Welles as attorney Jonathan Wilk, based on Clarence Darrow. Diane Varsi as Ruth Evans. And Martin Milner as Sid Brooks. Directed by Richard Fleischer, Compulsion is set in Chicago, Illinois, in the year 1924. In the first few minutes of the film, the two Leopold and Loeb-inspired characters are immediately established. Artie Strauss is the arrogant, taunting, existential dominant of the two. 
Judd Steiner is the brilliant, loyal, troubled submissive. The two young men are first seen fleeing from their fraternity house with the incriminating, distinctive typewriter. Artie wastes no time in criticizing Judd's nervousness, further testing his loyalty by attempting to deliberately run a drunk pedestrian off the road with Judd's father's car. Judd is emotionally wounded by Artie as he has sworn to obey his dominant companion's every command. Yet, even as early as the first five minutes of the movie, it becomes obvious that he is the only one of the two with a conscience. Mere moments before Artie makes fatal contact with his intended victim, Judd grabs the wheel, which causes the car to swerve away from the drunk, thus preventing Artie from committing premeditated vehicular manslaughter. Annoyed that his murderous plot has been foiled, Artie commands Judd to switch places with him and drive the car himself. Judd immediately obeys him. The roles of our two main characters are instantly distinguishable to everyone in the audience. Artie is insane, commanding, and narcissistic. He makes the decisions, orchestrates the plan of execution, and gives the orders. Judd is Artie's polar opposite. He is consumed by a blinding loyalty and a desperate need of approval from Artie, whom he views as his captain. With each stabbing dismissal from Artie, Judd begs for more orders. His ultimate desire is to be controlled at any cost to himself and others around him. One could easily identify Artie's relationship with Judd as a classic case of abuse, with Judd immediately rushing to his commander's defense at the slightest insinuation from his older brother, Max. Where have you been? Take your hand off my arm. I don't have to answer to you. Or anybody else, say, kid. Outside of Artie, you don't give a damn about anything else in the world, do you? For your information, my dear brother, Max, Artie Strauss happens to have one of the most brilliant minds I've ever had. I know all about Artie Strauss and his mind. Now, I've no doubt you both have twice the brains that I have. I'd just like to see you use them for once on something besides cheating old ladies at bridge and giggling and scheming in your room all afternoon. I don't expect any consideration for myself, but Artie happens to be a gentleman. Something I doubt you'd understand. Oh, I understand. All right. Would you like me to tell you something else about him? I think he's a dirty, evil... You keep your filthy mouth shut! I don't have to listen to your Next, we see Judd seated in a class at the University of Chicago when his fellow student, Sid, a reporter for the Globe, seeks his assistance when he is late for the lecture. Judd obligingly distracts the teacher, Professor McKinnon, with his views on Nietzsche. Both Judd and Artie, who, like their real-life counterparts, were studying law, share a fondness for the German philosopher and use that fascination to justify their experiments on those they deem intellectually inferior. Judd continues to advocate Nietzsche's assumption that those of superior intellect are above the laws of the common man. Sid chimes in, but fails to convince the professor that he was present at the beginning of the period, despite Judd's efforts to help him pull off the ruse. On a side note, Leslie Wenzel requested that I mention how very taken she is by Dean's portrayal of Judd's arrogant humor, claiming Moses only obeyed the laws of man because he had to lead his motley crew through the desert somehow. This facade of superiority masks the frightened child who dwells within Judd Steiner, and Dean showcases every nuance beautifully. All men are bound by law, Mr. Steiner. Can you cite an example of any of these men who fail to respect the law or the rights of the individual? Can Nietzsche explain that away, Mr. Steiner? Oh, I think so, sir. If you've read him, sir, you'll remember that he conceives the Superman as being detached from such human emotions as anger and greed and lust and the will to power. 
and all completely beyond my comprehension, although apparently not yours or Nietzsche's. But I still cling to the theory that if we were all super intellects, we would nevertheless evolve our own code of laws. After leaving the class with Judd, Sid encounters Artie, who is telling an exciting, and most likely fabricated, story about a too-close-for-comfort run-in with a gun-bearing stranger while running whiskey in Canada. Sid knows Artie is full of it, but Strauss is too busy flaunting his intellect to care and invites everyone out for drinks at the Four Deuces that evening. The entire group eagerly accepts, including Sid's girlfriend, Ruth. Next, we see Sid at work at the Globe, where two stories have simultaneously broken over the wires, one involving the drowning of a young boy in Hegwich Park and the other of a kidnapping. Sid has to go to the morgue to gather information about the drowned victim and discovers that the two cases are in fact one in the same. The young boy is identified as Polly Kessler, the son of a rich family who lives in Artie Strauss's neighborhood. While looking at the boy in the morgue, Sid notices a pair of eyeglasses that have fallen from his body. At first, Sid assumes the glasses belong to Kessler. After attempting to fit them onto Polly's face, however, Sid discovers that the glasses are far too large, indicating that they belong to an adult. The boy's uncle arrives a few hours later. He positively identifies the remains as that of his nephew, and the media frenzy begins. Word quickly spreads that Polly has been murdered, and that evening, while having a few drinks with Artie and Judd at the Four Deuces, Sid breaks the news about the glasses. A look of horror passes over Judd's face. Panicking, he checks his breast pocket to discover that his glasses are, in fact, missing. Artie realizes what has happened as well, and in a fit of rage, shatters the drinking glass in his hand. The twosome abruptly leave the dance hall, sticking Sid with the bill. Artie, will you sit down? It was just a lucky break. <laughs> Boy, it sure was. You know, if he hadn't identified the body when he did, the Kesslers would have paid the ransom. Well, it'll be in the early morning editions. Just another lucky break. About the glasses. Glasses? What, <clears throat> what do you mean? What kind of glasses? Eyeglasses, you know. The police thought they belonged to the boy, but they looked pretty big to me, so when nobody was around, I tried them on the body. Anyway, they didn't fit, so they couldn't have been his. I didn't say anything to anybody. Do you so... mean they could have belonged to the murderer? Well, the police right. seem to think it's possible. It's not a very logical conclusion. Anyone could have dropped them. But anybody didn't. They must belong to the Artie and Judd return to Judd's home, apparently hours after the party because Artie's hand is now bandaged in the scene. We then see Judd frantically ripping his room apart, searching for his glasses. Artie sits in judgment on Judd's chair, holding his teddy bear. He maniacally uses the stuffed animal to incessantly taunt Judd with his failures. I can't find them. They've got to be here somewhere. I couldn't have left them out there. Of course not. The last time I wore them, I was studying. Now, tweet jacket. Yeah, the same one he had on yesterday. The same one he tossed on the ground when he got that brilliant idea about hiding the body. He left him there like a calling card, didn't he, Teddy? I didn't drop them. You picked my coat up, you grabbed it up by the tail and tossed it to me. That's when they fell out. I agree it was inexcusable to have them oh, in my pocket, but I Teddy. didn't drop them. Isn't that lovely? He agrees it was all our fault. We said dump the body in the lake, but no, he had a stroke of genius. Shove the kid in the culvert, he said. Nobody will ever find him there. No, not in a million years, he said. Artie, will you please stop that? Shut up, we're not talking to you. The first guy by on his way to work pulled him out of that stinking culvert. Why do you suppose he picked the culvert, Teddy? Huh? Because he was scared and it was the first place handy? Yeah, I think you're right. And you know what else I think? I think he never wanted to go through with it anyway. That's not true and you know it, Artie. We agreed it was the true test of the superior intellect. Superior intellect? <laughs> what do you think of that, Teddy? You and I work out this perfect, beautiful crime. And then the superior intellect tries to see how many ways he can... The police launch an active investigation into Polly Kessler's murder. 
Because it was his intention from the very start to lead the detectives on a wild goose chase, all the while laughing at their collective incompetence, Artie takes it upon himself to offer his assistance to Police Lieutenant Johnson. Relishing every moment that he is in close proximity to the police, Artie continues to throw suspicion in the most conveniently incorrect directions. He even goes as far as to point his accusatory finger at several teachers in the school, older, male teachers whose classes are made up of young boys, and causes the police to question the intentions of each man towards his pupils. Artie's misdirection leads to these teachers losing their positions very quickly. That same afternoon, Judd is having lunch with Sid's girlfriend, Ruth, after classes. Ruth is waiting for Sid to return from helping the police with the murder. Judd is lonesome for company, still being ignored by Artie, and is happily discussing his interest in birdwatching with her. Ruth is genuinely interested and says she would like to go with him. Thrilled, Judd invites her to accompany him on Thursday afternoon. Before she agrees to go with him, they are interrupted by the arrival of Sid and Artie. Instantly, Judd excuses himself to chase after Artie, who brushed Judd off the second he addressed him. Judd says he hopes Ruthie can make it Thursday and runs off after Artie. The following afternoon, Tom Daly, one of the head writers of the Globe, and Sid stop by the Strauss's residence to use the phone. And Sid informs Artie that the teachers whose names he dropped as oddballs and weirdos have lost their jobs. Artie feigns concern over this, saying it was a rotten thing for him to do. A minute later, Mr. Daly finishes his call and informs Artie that the typewriter used to write the ransom note has been identified. It is the one Judd stole from the fraternity house. Angered about this, Artie later pays Judd a visit, intending to scold him for his foolishness in using the typewriter and to test his loyalty to him. During this visit, he learns from Judd about the date for the following day. He begins taunting him, saying, Are you ditching me for some girl? And when Judd explains that he hasn't been able to find him for three days, guesses the girl's identity. He then deduces the location and the activity. Artie, excited, begins snapping his fingers and pacing around the room, saying it's a perfect location, that girls never talk afterwards, and Ruth could scream her head off. Judd shoots a disgusted and furious look at Artie, who asks, What's the matter? Isn't that what you planned? Judd tells him it was not. Callously, Artie asks whether Judd is falling for Ruth, which he vehemently denies. When Judd said he simply hadn't thought of it, Artie begins pushing him. Now look, we agreed to explore all the possibilities of human experience, didn't we? Unemotionally detached. Put together, Artie. Sure, but I've done things alone. You can too. Don't tell me you haven't got the nerve. It's perfect. And the best part is that Ruth won't be suspecting a thing. What's the matter? You want me to order you to, Judd? At the appointed day and time, Judd attempts his attack on Ruth, but cannot go through with it. He is disgusted with himself, and in shame, falls into a heap on the ground, in tears. Murder's nothing. It's just a simple experience. Murder and rape. Do you know what beauty there is in evil? Is there? Yes. You tried to frighten me, Judd. If you were to move now, why don't you run? Is that what you want me to do? Yes. Do you have to attack me, Judd? I don't have to do anything. If I attack you, it's because I choose... No! Ah! Are you afraid of me? I'm afraid for you, Judd. I'm afraid for you. Judd. Oh, God. Oh, my God. 
When Judd returns from his attempted attack on Ruthie, Artie informs him that he questioned Lieutenant Johnson regarding the glasses found on the body and asked him why the police weren't following the lead. Johnson looked into it and learned that there were 4,200 pairs of glasses that looked exactly like those found on the body. Artie is thrilled, thinking that he has let Judd off the hook as the police can't trace 4,200 pairs of glasses. Or so he thinks. After this encounter, the police come to realize that the two boys are indeed the key to solving the Kessler murder, and several hours later, go to the Steiner home, asking Judd to produce his glasses. When he can't, they take the boy in for questioning. District Attorney Harold Horn takes Judd up to a hotel room to be questioned. The boy is then tricked into concocting an explanation as to how his glasses could have fallen out of his pocket while supposedly birdwatching with his ornithological class outing the day before the murder. Each time, Mr. Horn is able to debunk Steiner's theories as to how the glasses could have fallen out of his pocket. During the interrogation, we learn that though they look like one in a thousand, the glasses are, in fact, unique. Through the process of elimination, he is finally able to prove that the glasses do, in fact, belong to Judd. Horn then begins spending the next several hours gleaning an alibi from Judd for the day of the murder, but Judd refuses to name the friend that he was with, claiming that they were with two girls called May and Edna, and that if he revealed the name of his friend, their overly protective and religious parents would be infuriated should they find out about the girls. Finally, an exhausted Judd concedes when Horn promises not to disclose the information they have learned from him to their parents and names Artie as his friend and alibi for that afternoon, and Lieutenant Johnson is sent to fetch him. Wednesday was the night the little Kessler boy was kidnapped. Is that why you want to know? And I better get it right. Wednesday. Oh, yeah. I remember. I went to the movies. Alone. No friends? No girls? Did he say something about two girls named May and Edna? Oh, I don't know if that's their names. Uh, two girls we interviewed as secretaries. That's not true, Mr. Horn. Judd's broken his word of honor to me. He promised he'd never tell it to anybody. Why, Artie? Well, because that's... That's where we were Wednesday night. How about a... With a couple of chippies we picked up on Lakeshore Drive. He knows what'll happen if my family finds out. Well, what else did he tell you that we... Artie, but... have you been lying? Don't you know this is a murder case? Do you realize what the consequences could be? Can't be as bad as what my old man will do. He'll skin me alive if he finds out I was out with a couple of tramps. Look, we were just out, out cruising in Judd's Stutz, and, and we saw these two tramps, May and Edna, they said their names were. Eventually, when the boys show signs of tiredness and hunger, the officers and the district attorney assigned to the case take them out to dinner at a fancy restaurant. Judd is familiar with the staff and communicates with their waiter in three different languages, including French and German. Lieutenant Johnson and District Attorney Harold Horn seem to initially believe that Artie and Judd are innocent. The only piece of evidence casting doubt is the highly incriminating spectacles. After dinner, the press bombards the group of policemen, Horn, and the boys, asking what is going on and why the boys are still being held. Horn tells the press that they haven't been charged, but they will be held for as long as necessary, and both groups get into separate elevators to return to the hotel rooms and continue questioning. A policeman called Davis informs Horn that the pressmen are correct. Without charges, the boys cannot legally be held. Horn has a niggling reservation about the glasses, which is making him want to hold the boys. 
but feeling it insignificant brushes it off and tells Davis that he will release them. Once out of the elevator, Horn discovers the Steiner's chauffeur standing in the hallway with Lieutenant Johnson, holding a suitcase. When Horn questions him about it, he explains that Judd's father had sent pajamas and some toilet articles for Judd in case the police decided to keep him overnight. When Horn informs him that Judd is being released, the chauffeur expresses relief, saying he knew they couldn't have possibly done it, as Judd Stutz was in the garage the entire afternoon on Wednesday, and they couldn't have gone to Hegwich Park unless they walked. The boys' alibis are now busted, and Horn moves in for the kill. It's all over, Steiner. Your partners confessed everything. Oh, come now, Mr. Horn. Isn't this the sort of thing they do in detective stories? You can hardly expect me to be taken in by that, even if there was something to confess. Yes, I guess it was rather stupid of me at that. You might also have taken into consideration that aside from the fact that he's my best friend, Artie is far too intelligent to... To be trapped by us poor specimens? I suppose so. But uh, Artie was such a good friend of a young man who helped him write a ransom note on a stolen typewriter and uh, who rented a black sedan from the Collins Drive Yourself Agency on May 16th that uh, I thought it might joggle your memory. Do you take me for an idiot? Let's see, what did he say about that car? Oh, yes. I drove it. Judd Steiner was sitting in the back seat with Paulie Kessler. I don't know how it happened, but Paulie started to struggle. Judd told him to be quiet, and then he hit him. He hit him very hard. Oh, that weakling. That child. That inferior weakling. Where is he? Hold it. He said that he's lying. It's a cheap, cowardly lie. Mr. Strauss didn't drive the car I did. And I didn't kill Polly. Mr. Strauss did. He's lying. He's lying! Enter Jonathan Wilk, an atheist lawyer with a better understanding of Christian conduct and moral court proceedings than the most competent priest could ever dream of possessing. Wilk is an unpopular choice with Artie's religious father, but he is eventually convinced to allow him to take the case, and Mr. Wilk is asked to consider defending the boys. Next, we see a press conference wherein both Strauss and Steiner are being questioned by District Attorney Harold Horn after their statements are read for the press. When asked whether or not they have anything to add to their statements, each points an accusatory finger at the other, but never make eye contact. It is almost like watching a married couple after a fight, the wife avoiding eye contact with the husband, and the husband refusing to speak directly to his spouse, and both using an innocent bystander as an intermediary for the following argument. The press eagerly snaps pictures as the boys continue their charade with the police. Mr. Wilk enters the room soon after. He acquaints himself with Artie and Judd and instructs them to say nothing to anyone until he has had a chance to speak to them alone, and they are sent out of the room. You are Artie? Yes. Judd? Yes, sir. Your folks have retained me as counsel for the defense. I've always admired you tremendously, Mr. Wilk. You can prove it, both of you by saying absolutely nothing to anybody until I instruct you to the contrary. 
At this point in the proceedings, a group of psychiatrists have been asked to determine the mental states of both boys. Will copes to enter a plea of insanity in order to possibly spare Artie and Judd from the death penalty, which in 1924 was achieved by hanging. The debate ensues between Mr. Wilk and the psychiatrist groups. One pair determines the boys are of sound mind, which causes Mr. Wilk to derisively scoff at the sanity of the two doctors who came to this determination. The opposing pair feel that Judd is paranoid and Artie is schizophrenic. Wilk takes this opinion into consideration, but as he still hopes to gain a plea of insanity for both boys, he speaks to them privately. I see you have the finished report. It should be intensely interesting. These have been the most fascinating four weeks I've ever spent. Do you think that'll be a major contribution to criminology? I'd hardly say that, Judd. You know that guard that brings us up here every day? He's got a sick wife, five kids, and a house they're going to throw him out of. I know, I talked to him. For $5,000, he could be looking the other way when we come past the admitting desk. Three steps, we're outside. There's a car waiting with a motor running. And a mad dash to the Canadian border, Artie. Okay, so we do it your way and go to trial in the morning. Oh, still one subject that concerns me. The newspapers have been playing it up. The state's attorney may try to do something with it. It's the fact that, aside from each other, you don't have any close friends. We didn't have any other friends because there was no one of sufficient intelligence and maturity worth cultivating. Is there anything wrong in that? Nothing, unless the state's attorney wants to make something of it with hostile witnesses. If he calls, him, I'd like to have somebody speak for you. Yes, there is one I've been out with lately, Ruth Evans. But I'd sooner you didn't call her, sir. I don't want her involved in this. The trial proceedings are now in session. At this point, neither Artie nor Judd have been called to testify. But Wilkes startlingly changes the plea from not guilty due to grounds of insanity to guilty with mitigating circumstances. This causes a shockwave around the courtroom, and most of the lawyers involved with the case are miffed at his sudden change of course. Wilk, however, is unswayed, and the plea is accepted. Despite his ruling, the judge wishes to see Wilk, along with the families of both boys, in his chambers. If I'm going to persuade anybody of the boy's emotional instability, emotional instability, going to be the judge alone, but we hired you on your reputation as a manipulator of jurors. Of course we did. That's sitting in that courtroom today, studying that jury. We wouldn't have had a chance with him. No, Mr. Wilk. I can't understand any of this. Will what you did today help Artie? I think so, Mrs. Strauss. I hope so. You see, here in Illinois, when you plead guilty, you don't have to have a jury. And that means that I'll be talking just to the judge. I hope you'll be more tolerant than any jury. From this point forward, the tension between the two boys becomes more palpable. Artie becomes more arrogant and almost seems aroused as the excitement mounts. Judd, meanwhile, grows more terrified. His feelings of guilt and shame reach insurmountable levels when Ruth Evans is asked to testify on his behalf. Ruth uses Judd's shame and inability to go through with the attack in his defense, to the shock and horror of Sid and the jury. After her testimony, Judd is so overcome with shame that he faints and falls out of his chair onto the courtroom floor. You would have seen him again? Yes. Within a few hours after this judge was arrested, did your feelings toward him change then? Of course. I realized that the unhappiness I sensed in him had 
caused him to commit a violent and insane crime. And with this knowledge, would you still see him again? Yes. I felt sorry for him then, and I feel sorry for him now. No further question. Here we come to the end of the trial, and the most poignant part of the film, where Mr. Wilk begins to make his speech to the judge and jury. He begs that the lives of Artie Strauss and Judd Steiner be spared, and that instead of the death penalty, they are giving life imprisonment for their heinous act of murder. His reasoning for this is a Christian one, an example of merciful judgment, and he makes it plain that he wishes this course of action for the sake of retaining the humanity of all who hold the power to call a sentence of life or death over the two boys. His speech is impassioned, powerful, and gut-wrenching and we see him easily sway all those within hearing in the room. This crime is the most fiendish, cold-blooded, inexcusable case the world has ever known. That's what Mr. Horn has told this court. Your Honor, I've been practicing law a good deal longer than I ought to have. Anyhow, for 45, 46 years, during all that time, I've never tried a case where the state's attorney did not say it was the most cold-blooded, inexcusable case ever. Certainly there was no excuse for the killing of little Polly Kessler. There was also no reason for it. It wasn't for spite or hate or for money. The great misfortune of this case is money. If Your Honor shall doom these boys to die, it'll be because their parents are rich. I hope I don't need to mention that I'll fight as hard for the poor as for the rich. If I'd come into this court alone... Two ordinary, obscure defendants who've done what these boys have done. This crime was had in all this weirdness and notoriety and this sensational publicity. I said, Your Honor, I'm willing to enter a plea of guilty and let you sentence them to life imprisonment. Do you suppose the state's attorneys would raise their voices in protest? Now, there's never been a case in Chicago where a plea of guilty, a boy under 21, has been sentenced to death. Not one. Yet for some reason, in the case of these immature boys of diseased minds, as plain as day, they say you can only get justice by shedding their last drop of blood. Isn't a lifetime behind prison bars enough for this mad act? And must this great public be regaled with a hanging? For the last three weeks, I've heard nothing but the cry of blood in this room. I've heard nothing from the offices of the state's attorney but ugly hatred. For God's sake, are we crazy? If you hang these boys, it will mean that in this land of ours, a court of law could not help but bow down to public opinion. And as cruel a speech as you knew how to make, the state's attorney has told this court that we're pleading guilty because we're afraid to do anything else. Your Honor, that's true. So of course I'm afraid to submit this case to a jury. Well, the responsibility must be divided by 12. No, Your Honor. If these boys must hang, you must do it. It must be your own deliberate, cool, premeditated act. The state's attorney has laughed at me for talking about children's fantasies. But what does he know about childhood? What do I know? Is there any one of us who hasn't been guilty of some kind of delinquency in his youth? How many men are there here today? Lawyers and congressmen judges and even state's attorneys who haven't been guilty of 
Some kind of wild act in youth. And if the consequences didn't amount to much and we didn't get caught, that was our good luck. This was something different. This was the mad act of two sick children who belong in a psychopathic hospital. Do I need to argue it? It's any man with a decent regard for human life. And the slightest bit of heart who doesn't understand it. We're told it was a cold-blooded killing because they planned and schemed, yes, but here are officers of the state who for months have planned and schemed and contrived to take these boys' lives. Talk about scheming. Your Honor, I've become obsessed with this deep feeling of hate and anger. I've been fighting it, battling with it, till it's fairly driven me mad. What about this matter of crime and punishment, anyway? Through the centuries, our laws have been modified. Till now, men look back with horror at the hangings and killings of the past. It's been proven that as the penalties are less barbarous, the crimes are less frequent. Do I need to argue with your honor that cruelty only breeds cruelty? That every religious leader who's held up as an example has taught us that if there's any way to kill evil, it's not by killing men. And if there's any way of destroying hatred and all that goes with it, it's not through evil and hatred and cruelty. It's through charity, love, understanding. This is a Christian community, so-called. Is there any doubt that these boys would be safe in the hands of the founder of the Christian religion? I think anyone who knows me knows how sorry I am for little Paulie Kessler. He knows that I'm not saying it simply to talk. Hardy and Judd enticed him into a car, and when he struggled, they hit him over the head and killed him. They did that. They poured acid on him to destroy his identity and put the naked body in a ditch. And if killing these boys would bring him back to life, I'd say, let them go. And I think their parents would say so, too. Neither they nor I would want to release them as be isolated from society. I'm asking this court to shut them into a prison for life. Any cry for more goes back to the hyena. Roots back to the beasts of the jungle. There's no part in man. This court is told to give them the same mercy that they gave their victim. Your honor, if our state is not kinder, more human, more considerate, more intelligent than the mad act of these two sick boys, then I'm sorry that I've lived so long. I know that any mother might be the mother of little Polly Kessler when left home and went to school, never came back. I know that any mother might be the mother of Heidi Strauss, Judd Steiner. Maybe that in some ways these parents are more responsible than their children. I guess the truth is that all parents can be criticized. And these might have done better if they hadn't had so much money. I do not know. The state's attorney has pictured the putting of the poor little dead body in the ditch. But Your Honor, I can only think now of Taking these two boys, 18 and 19, penning them in a cell, checking off the days and hours and minutes until they're wakened in the gray of the morning and led to the scaffold. Their feet tied, black caps drawn over their heads, stood on a trap, the hangman pressing the spring. I can see them fall through space. I can see them stop by the rope around their necks. It would be done, of course, in the name of justice. Justice? Who knows what it is? Do I know? Does Your Honor know? Can Your Honor tell me what I deserve? Can Your Honor appraise yourself and say what you deserve? 
Do you think you can cure the hatreds and maladjustments of the world by hanging them? Mr. Horn says that if we hang Hardy and Judd, there'll be no more killing. The world has been one long slaughterhouse from the beginning until today. And the killing goes on and on and on. Why not read something? Why not think instead of blindly shouting for death? Kill. Because everybody's talking about the case. Because their parents have money. Kill them. Will that stop other sick boys from killing? It's taken the world a long, long time to get to even where it is today. Your Honor, if you hang these boys, you turn back to the past. I'm pleading for the future, not merely for these boys, but for all boys, for all the young. I'm pleading not for these two lives, but for life itself. For a time when we can learn to overcome hatred with love. When we can learn that all life is worth saving. That mercy is the highest attribute of men. Yes, I'm pleading for the future. In this court of law, I'm pleading for love. When the speech is over, silence falls completely, and the judge calls recess till 10 o'clock the following morning. As everyone stands and is ushered out to leave, the camera cuts to Artie and Judd. We see Judd facing Mr. Wilk with a look of morose gratitude on his face. He wants to say something, but he can't find the courage to do so. At the same time, we see Artie staring at Judd, a hard, stony look upon his face, almost daring Judd to say something, so that he can exact punishment against his wayward servant. But since Judd never speaks, Artie never needs to act in retaliation. Both boys are ushered out with the rest of the jury and the witnesses. The next cut shows Sid stopping Ruth as she comes out of the courtroom. He tells her he's glad she went on the stand, and that it took a lot of courage for her to do what she did. He then walks off, almost as if he feels things are over between them. But Ruth stops him, takes his arm, and they walk off together. Finally, we have come to the verdict. Mr. Wilk has won. The boys are given their sentences. And the film comes to a dramatic end. So we slept through three months of misery just to hear that. I wish they'd hung us right off the bat. That's your only reaction, Artie? No remorse, no feeling of remorse. I wasn't expecting you to fall down on your knees and thank God for deliverance. God? That sounds rather strange coming from you, Mr. Will. Yeah. A lifetime of doubt and questioning doesn't necessarily mean I've reached any final conclusions. Well, I have. And God has nothing to do with it. You sure, Judd? In those years to come, you might find yourself asking if it wasn't the hand of God dropped those glasses. And if he didn't, who did? As is expected of our darling man, Dean's performance in this film was a striking one. He gives his entire heart and soul to his performance, making his character even more sympathetic than one suspects from the beginning of the film. We find ourselves rooting for Judd as we watch the film, sweating and praying that death doesn't come to him in the form of the hangman's swift and greedy rope. And when the final verdict is revealed, you will undoubtedly find yourself breathing a haggard sigh of exhausted relief because you've been perched on the edge of your seat, teetering with the constant threat of falling to the floor from the moment the film began until the film ends. And now that the credits have rolled, 
It is refreshing to sit back, go limp, and breathe deeply once again. Yes, my friends, the film version of Compulsion is a roller coaster ride with many twists and turns that keep you at a constant, taut tether. Often, you feel if the events and the characters pull you much tighter, you'll snap clean in half. Yet, the film version is, by comparison to the play, extraordinarily tame. In the play version, the roles by way of frailty and innocence were slightly switched. In the Broadway production of Compulsion, Roddy McDowell portrayed Artie Strauss, and his touch to the character made the concept of Artie's schizophrenic nature far more terrifying than Bradford Dillman would have ever dreamed of. McDowell added a vulnerability to the character by way of making his mental state one of complete unawareness of his actions and the consequences they gleaned. Many reports have been that during a jail scene in the final stages of the play, McDowell's Artie has a complete meltdown, dropping down onto his knees before his mother, grabbing a firm hold around her legs, and while rocking back and forth, whimpers repeatedly. I want my teddy bear. There are photographs of this scene on the compulsion section of the Tribute to Roddy McDowell site, xmoppet.org, along with other photos of Roddy as Artie, sitting tautly upright in a chair and clutching the teddy bear for dear life, a look of abject horror across his face. Reports of this portrayal of Strauss showed him as being far more unhinged than he is portrayed in the film, as it shows a mind which is completely lost to the ravages of insanity. McDowell's Artie Strauss was completely unaware of his vile actions of murder and mayhem, and he becomes so confused during the process of the trial that it sends him into a tailspin, which can only be compared to that of a terrified child cowering in a corner. Dean's portrayal of Judd in the play, however, was as we saw in the film, if not perhaps a bit less open-mouthed and wide-eyed. Here are some articles I found on the play version of Compulsion. This is a few clippings from Sheila O'Malley's blog on Dean Stockwell from August 2007. Compulsion, the novel, was written by Meyer Levin and became a bestseller. It's based on the Leopold and Loeb case, although he changed all the names, morphed a couple characters together, and was primarily interested in the psychology of that relationship. He goes into great detail, the king-slash-slave sexual fantasies that Leopold and Loeb acted out, and what they meant in terms of the power dynamic, what they signified, etc. Levin adapted his novel into a script, which then went into production for Broadway. It was a hot property, one of the bestsellers of the day. The script was very much true to the novel and did not shy away from some of the details that the eventual film would not be able to mention. Roddy McDowell played Artie Strauss, or Loeb, on Broadway, and Dean Stockwell played Judd Steiner, or Leopold, the role he would eventually recreate in the film. Roddy McDowell did not do the film, which angered Stockwell. He loved working with McDowell and had been quite vocal about how brilliant he thought Roddy was in the part. The handsome Bradford Dillman played McDowell's role in the film, and oddly enough, Dillman originated the role of Edmund in Long Day's Journey into Night on Broadway. It made him a star, and it was the same role that Stockwell eventually would do in the film version in 1962. Compulsion was a hot property. Everybody wanted to be in it. Stockwell didn't have to campaign for it, though. Alex Sagal, director, called him up and asked him to read for it, saying that he had in mind the role of Judd for him. Stockwell was not a big reader, not that he didn't like books. I just mean that he didn't like to read for parts. 
He doesn't feel that he can really show up and do his thing when he's reading. But Sagal insisted, so Stockwell read for the part. It went great, and Sagal offered him the role. Stockwell suffered in the city like a caged bird. He suffered so badly that he came down with the Asian flu, part of a huge epidemic at the time where people were dropping like flies. The show had to open without him, and his stand-in did the previews. Stockwell recovered and did a run of the show, getting great reviews. I love the film, but of course, I would have loved to see the live production. And here is a snippet from Maria Zambrana's book, Nature Boy, which I found via exmoppet.org on the play. However, it should be mentioned before I read this, the author herself has admitted to a great many factual fallacies in this article. So many things are inaccurate. But it still gives us an idea of what went on during the production, even if it isn't completely perfect facts-wise. Thank you to Miss Zambrana for giving me permission to use this in the podcast. By the summer of 1957... Dean Stockwell had successfully restarted his acting career. Along with appearances in Gun for a Coward and The Careless Years, he also landed some television roles in Front Row Center, Matinee Theater, also known as Cameo Theater, Schlitz Playhouse of Stars, The United States Steel Hour, Climax, and Wagon Train. Then, in the fall of 1957, he had the opportunity to perform again on Broadway, something he hadn't done since his stint in 1944's Innocent Voyage. The anticipated play was called Compulsion, and was based on Meyer Levin's semi-biographical novel, originally titled Compulsion and Free Will. With the title shortened to Compulsion and the publication labeled as a documentary novel, the book was finally published and released by Simon & Schuster in the fall of 1956. The story centered on a real murder case in which Chicago residents Nathan Leopold Jr., age 19, and Richard Loeb, age 18, chose a victim at random, then kidnapped and murdered him. The body of their 14-year-old victim, Bobby Franks, a distant cousin of Loeb's, was abandoned in a culvert, and the two young men continued with their plans to collect ransom money for Franks' kidnapping. Less than two weeks after the murder, the police tracked down and arrested the two boys, putting them on trial for kidnapping and murder with the hope of getting the death penalty. Famous lawyer Clarence Darrow defended his clients in a historic case and saved them from a hanging death, winning each of them a sentence of life plus 99 years. Loeb never fulfilled his sentence. He was killed in prison in 1937, but Leopold went on to become a model prisoner and was released on parole in 1959. Levin enjoyed the quick fame that came from the novel's release. He suddenly found himself as a celebrity and an authority on the psychology of crime, contacted by radio and television stations interested in his viewpoint. His success with Compulsion earned him respectable reviews and got the attention of Hollywood. In December, producer Daryl F. Zanuck of 20th Century Fox purchased the screen rights for Compulsion, under the stipulation that Levin prepared a theater adaptation before December 1, 1957. The deal gave Meyer Levin the liberty of choosing his own Broadway producer, and he wanted to wait for actor Orson Welles to take over the production. Despite the legendary actor's strong interest in the play, Welles' unstable financial situation could not handle the strain, and Levin found himself rapidly approaching the December deadline. After Lee Connell, Theodore Mann, and Jose Quintero, the co-producers of Long Day's Journey Into Night, rejected the play, he finally settled on producers Michael Meyerberg and Leonard Grunberg to handle the production. 
Many actors came forward expressing an interest in the roles being offered, particularly the leading roles of Judd Steiner, a caricature of Nathan Leopold, and Artie Strauss, Richard Loeb's fictional double. Early in the auditioning process, hundreds of hopefuls had to go through arduous cattle-call auditions with the producers. In the foreword of his published work, Compulsion, a play, Levin explained his dismay at having no control over that element of the production. It had been suggested that it would have been a waste of time for him to be present for the preliminary casting interviews. And during the process, he met one major candidate for a major role, and then only long enough to shake hands. The set designer had daily conferences with Alex Sagel, the director, and Meyerberg. Levin did not, and he began to get seriously worried about it. Stockwell, unlike the other actors who auditioned, simply got lucky. Sagel called him from New York and asked him if he wanted to do the role of Judge Steiner. The Loeb-Leopold case fascinated the actor, and he agreed to do a reading for the producer, Michael Meyerberg. He was afraid that he'd blown his chance because he couldn't read the part very well, due in part to his haphazard studio schooling. Instead, he felt it necessary to study and rehearse a role and to grow comfortable with it. Despite his skepticism, the reading went favorably, and contracts were drawn up and ready for him to sign. Stockwell enjoyed working with the other cast members of Compulsion and with his co-star, Roddy McDowell, who was awarded the role of Artie Strauss in August of 1957. McDowell's performance demonstrated a deep understanding of the role. It also came at the height of his acting powers and was arguably the greatest role he ever performed. Trouble began with compulsion early on, when Michael Meyerberg and Meyer Levin engaged in a public argument through the press. They soon took one another to court over the script. Levin resented the fact that the producers had brought in another writer, Robert Tom, to revamp the script and make it more stage-friendly. In doing so, they also took away Levin's creative input on the project. The newspapers reported the dispute between Levin and Meyerberg on a daily basis. Levin sued the producer over the loss of creative control and sued Tom for libel and lost wages. Both Meyerberg and Tom then countersued Levin. With his parole imminent, Nathan Leopold also began to sue over the use of his name. He ended up suing Levin, Meyerberg, 20th Century Fox, and even the movie theaters that eventually showed the film. Meanwhile, the actors in Compulsion began the arduous task of performing. The stress of taking on the character, not to mention the shift into theater performing and his move to New York, affected Stockwell considerably. Although he relished the role, the depressing subject matter became a difficult experience to live through, night after night. Bad luck hit the production just after rehearsals began, when Stockwell became one of the thousands of people in the United States affected by the Asian flu epidemic. His illness canceled one of the preview shows, but he was well enough to appear at the opening night performance. His stand-in, DJ Sullivan, took over the role in a few preview performances, and a couple of times during the play's run. Due to the strain from his demanding role as Jonathan Wilk, a shadow of real-life lawyer Clarence Darrow, actor Frank Conroy suffered a heart attack and had to be rushed to the hospital. The newspapers mistakenly announced his attack as the flu, but corrected themselves on the following day. Conroy's stand-in, a young man named Michael Constantine, stood in as the famous lawyer and performed admirably in the role. Stockwell's sickness, Conroy's heart attack, and the legal disputes delayed the opening of the play for three days, from Monday to Thursday, 
October the 24th. The critical reviews on Compulsion were printed the following day, and their opinions on the drama varied widely. The script and the length of the play were criticized harshly, but Stockwell and McDowell received high praise for their portrayals. Walter Kerr of the Herald Tribune claimed in his first night report that there are scenes that catch hold in their first few moments and seem to explore every nuance of disturbed and disturbing minds. Dean Stockwell, for instance, draws his mouth taut, freezes his shoulders, and in gasp after effortful gasp, wrings from himself the truth of his relationship to a master he has chosen to serve. The gringing arrival at self-knowledge is chillingly drawn. Roddy McDowell and Dean Stockwell play the two boys brilliantly. Mr. McDowell, antic and arrogant, Mr. Stockwell, crushed, weak, and gloomy, remarked Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times. Frank Aston of the New York World Telegram and The Sun printed one of the most praising critiques of the two actors in his article, Murder Trial is Strong Tonic. And here's one spectator to report that at the finish he felt tired. The truly exhausted ones, however, must have been Roddy McDowell and Dean Stockwell who played the killers. What a beating they took. Their every moment went full tilt. They did so well, so often, that it was difficult to choose high spots. Mr. Stockwell probably reached his peak of agony in confessing his unnatural passion, and Mr. McDowell reached his in a heart-tearing jail scene with his mother when he sobbed. I want my teddy bear. They're magnificent, these lads. Stockwell, however wonderful his performances, had trouble adjusting to the theater lifestyle. The exhausting role kept him on stage for almost the entire run of the play, and he needed a lot of rest to prepare for it. Roddy McDowell also felt the strain of it, and reportedly lost 30 pounds due to the high energy level demanded of his character. McDowell also strained a ligament in his chest in December 1957 during a performance and had to leave the play for a week. Along with the physical and emotional backlash of such an intense performance, Stockwell also had to contend with living in an unpleasant environment, New York City. He despised everything from his one-room apartment to the weather, the lack of fresh air, and the claustrophobic vertical feel of being surrounded by skyscrapers. Every Monday, his day off from compulsion, he would drive to Connecticut or upstate New York to visit the country and return a little refreshed to resume his dark role of Judd Steiner. In his spare time, he attended classical music and jazz concerts, music which he had a great passion for at the time. Afterwards, he would visit a restaurant called Downey's on 8th Avenue, where a number of young adults in show business hung out for some food and conversation. His sweet tooth still lingered from childhood, and he loved banana cream pie and chocolate pudding, along with milkshakes and cheeseburgers. At one point, there had been plans to move the production to Chicago and to England. The play skipped Chicago, Leopold's hometown, due to its controversial subject matter, and the overseas production did not hit the stage for several years. The production ran its course at the Ambassador and closed on February the 22nd, 1958. The production of Compulsion, both Broadway play and film, had its difficulties in starting out. All seemed to be primarily within cast parameters, as with the internal legal battles between the writers for the play and then later on the temporary clash between Dean Stockwell and Bradford Dillman. The actual film of Compulsion was done two years after the stage production wrapped in 1959, and Roddy's character was replaced by the wonderful late, great Bradford Dillman as the role of Artie Strauss. 
And the dynamic that Bradford and Dean had in the film, it definitely worked for one another. I know that Dean was not too thrilled with the fact that Roddy was replaced. I know Roddy definitely was very upset with the fact that he was replaced as well. But the original animosity that Dean had, not necessarily towards Bradford, but towards the fact that his casting had been replaced, that ended up working very well because in the beginning, there was this palpable tautness between the two of them. If I'm remembering correctly, Dean, of course, being a method actor and being a fantastic actor, used that tension brilliantly in the scenes between him and Bradford and it because both of them, their characters were based on the actual Chicago murder from the 20s, -hmm. that Leopold and Loeb case, the two young men who set out to commit the perfect crime. Yep, that's absolutely right. And the dynamic that the characters had with one another anyway in the story was supposed to be one of this competitive combativeness where one was obviously the leader and the other the follower. And that tension between the two of them, as you mentioned with Dean being a method actor, worked. And I, if my memory serves me correctly, I believe that in the beginning part of filming, Dean actually instigated a fight with Bradford just beforehand to stoke his uh, artistic fires and make him come off as being more hissy with him than he probably would have been. The dynamic of these two characters, I love the fact that they, even though they are partners in this so-called perfect crime and they're incredibly intelligent and everyone else around them in their eyes is just beneath them they're not on equal footing bradford's character Artie, is the dominant this is seriously bold territory especially for 1959 and i know the play went into it a little bit in into it in more detail then uh, director Richard Fleischer was allowed, but his character was the dominant and Dean's character, Judd, was submissive. He was the one being commanded. And I don't think if the two of them were the same, if they acted the same, behaved the same, I don't think it would have worked. And it was yeah, just phenomenal. Agree. It was like a dance. Which is interesting considering yes. what uh, what Quantum Leap episode we're talking about today. It's interesting considering what other episode we're talking about because watching them intellectually do battle was like watching a dance. Yes, a very well choreographed dance as well, I might add. It definitely left you on the edge of your seat, this film, because you, you never knew at each turn what was going to happen next because of the fact that they were both so completely unhinged, but in two completely different directions. Judd was more unhinged in the sense that he was scared to death to the the point he was practically wetting his pants almost every single scene. Whereas with Artie, he was just trying to decide how he could make things more interesting for everybody at each turn. He was trying to throw the investigation so that the police would look in the wrong direction and having teachers deposed that he didn't necessarily like because it served his purpose and making Judd 
attempt to rape a girl at one point and a girl that he very much liked. That was very difficult for him, obviously, because he had, as you said, this great admiration. But at the same time, he had more of a devotion to his dominant and wanted to please him. But at the same time, he couldn't go through with hurting this girl that he admired so much and that just killed him. That scene tears me up every single time I watch it, because every time you see Dean cry on camera, whether he was 70 years old or 70 years old, he meant it. He meant it. And that makes makes me feel it. Yeah, me too. Definitely. Every single time. That's another thing. And I think we have broached this in different episodes, probably the last episode that we talked about. When Dean is in an emotional scene, he puts himself through something that no one knows what he puts himself through in order to make those tears real. And Lord knows what is at the base of that pain, because when those tears flow, they flow and you feel it completely. It's just, a, it's, a, it's amazing what he can do and what he did with this film, especially. Very, very strong. And the subject matter for the time was pretty risque. Because the, the film Very. did not actually come out and say that these two characters might have had a sexual relationship. But it was, mm-hmm. and you can expound on this better than I can because I don't know as much about, mm. the, about the play, about the theatrical version. But it went there, like as, as far as, yes. as you could in the 50s. Yeah, and especially for the stage. I mean, you you weren't dealing with the with the Hayes Code so much. So with Broadway, I think you could probably get away with just a little bit more. And they did, at least from what I read, and I did not have access to the play itself. I also did not have access to film documentation of the actual play because whatever there was at the time, there was either no sound or it was lost completely or the quality was just not there. And so there was no access at all to the original play, which was devastating to me because I really wanted to see Roddy playing Artie. But from what I understand of the reading that I've done, the play definitely talked about it. If not directly, then indirectly. There was more than just a few winks here and there. And it it left the audience leaving with this very palpable feeling of, I can't breathe. You know, everybody was shocked by it. But it kept people coming back. And ultimately, that's the point of every Broadway play. They want the audience to come back, and it did. They had this very successful run for well over a year in two different theaters, huge theaters. And they sold tickets. So it made the impact. And this is going to sound odd. Actually, it's not going to sound odd because I think most people feel the same way. If I had to pick one thing I didn't like about the movie, it's the fact that almost all of Orson Welles' scenes, it wasn't like he showed up in the middle. He showed up at the end and stayed there. It's like yes. Orson Welles was on screen. <laughs> he took over the rest of the movie. He's top billed. Is he not top billed? And he has like yeah, I believe 45 minutes, his um, arguing the case. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, his character is obviously based on the, the actual attorney who defended Leopold and Loeb. And he played him well, but he is one of Hollywood's most well-known narcissistic jerks. Nobody likes yes. working with him. 
uh, Dean himself said they wanted to throw a good riddance party after they wrapped <laughs> because he was he yeah. was just the most insufferable person to work with. And Dean even said that he absolutely loathed him. Yes, and I don't I don't yeah. remember him saying that about anybody else really. I mean, there were people he couldn't stand, like his uh, his acting coach when he was a child star, and who could blame him. Think of think of yeah. puppies dying, and he's like, "No, I'm gonna, I I got this." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know how to act. Thank you very much. <laughs> Nobody ever had to teach him how to act, and that's my also also my other favorite thing about him is when when he was doing something, it's like, okay, I'm I'm just gonna stand back here. An experienced director or producer would just. Hey, let the man go. Let the man do his thing. Yeah, that's my least favorite part of Compulsion is Orson Welles. Just because of who he was as a person, I couldn't separate it from his character. Yeah, I agree. And there there have been many people in the past who have referred him to a, a, a blustering wind that wouldn't cease. He was very much one of those types of people that was a, a walking windbag and he was always tooting his own horn to the tune of his own drum you know he just he wanted everybody to know that he was there and he was in charge joseph cotton and vincent price were two people who worked in his theater company and they never had anything very nice to say about him except for about his acting talent no one could disagree that he was talented but as far as a person was concerned everybody hated him because he just he could not get out of his own headspace he couldn't think of anybody else and it made the other performers miserable yeah which is why he was the inspiration for the animated character the brain (laughs) (laughs) the guy who did his voice he's literally he's doing orson welles When the film was finally finished and all problems out of the way, the whole thing worked like a dream and is today considered by many to be one of the top film classics of all time. If you haven't seen Compulsion yet, I suggest that you do so as soon as possible. Though it is unfortunately impossible for us to go back in time and see the Broadway production in its full glory with both Dean and Roddy McDowell giving both parts their all, the film is a good one. And though it doesn't shine by the same gold standard as the play, it still has stood the test of time and remains to be one of the very best semi-historical dramas ever made in cinema history. Until next time, Dean lovers, hold on to your stogies. Maybe I shouldn't have fallen asleep when I did because it sounds like it was a fantastic movie. So I'm definitely going to get onto it. So we're obviously back. The girls have been having a great time talking about Dean Stockwell and Compulsion. I thought maybe now might be a good idea to remind you of the activity that I set. I hope you've done your homework because I will be handing out detentions otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Professor. The scenario was that there was a wealthy baroness who was abused by her husband and she she ran away trying to get away from the abuse, but nobody would help her. And when she went back with nowhere else to go asking for forgiveness, uh, she was killed. The activity was to rank the seven people as to who was the most responsible for the baroness's death. Just to remind you, there was the baroness herself, the baron who ordered her to be killed, 
the guard who actually killed her, the policeman who wouldn't do anything because the law said that he couldn't, the stranger who would only help for payment, one of the friends who was too scared to help for fear of retaliation, and one friend who wouldn't help because of the fact that she so heavily believed in the sanctity of marriage. So, uh, Leslie, how did you rank the order of the most responsible? Well, I went from least to most. And at number seven is the Baroness, for reasons I'll explain at the end. Number six is the first friend. The reason I didn't put her higher on the list is because she refused to help the Baroness out of fear. It's not a justifiable excuse, but it makes her, in this scenario, the least despicable. Number five... I said is the second friend because she's a disgusting piece of trash for putting an unfair law above her friendship with the Baroness. Number four, uh, number four is a stranger. I put the stranger closer to the top three because he doesn't care what's right or wrong as long as he makes a profit. Uh, Number three is the police officer. And my reason for his placement is equivalent to the next answer so i'll just include it in number two which is the guard for his blind allegiance to cruelty how many atrocities have been committed in our planet's history because someone was just following orders and the number one person most to blame is the baron himself it's his disgusting barbarism and abuse that she was trying to escape in the first place And the reason I put the Baroness at number seven, and and actually, in my opinion, she doesn't really belong in in the list, is because it's too easy to suggest that she deserves the top spot because she's the one who married the Baron. But even without knowing the premise behind this marriage, whether or not it was arranged according to custom or whether initially she didn't know what type of person he was, nobody deserves to be abused like that. You make some very good, valid points there, Leslie. Uh, How about you, Zoe? What was your ranking? Well, I feel a bit silly because I didn't do it the way that uh, Leslie did it. So she is definitely outranking me (laughs) with my answer. Well, well, Um, on the plus side, there's... There are some right answers, but there's no definitive right or wrong overall answer. So you can have it ranked however you want. Okay. Well, um, I personally felt that everyone but the Baroness was equally guilty for her death because no one would help her. No one was really willing to put their neck out on the chopping block, if you'll pardon the pun, to help her out. No one was willing to sacrifice themselves to save her, which I think ultimately would have been the right thing to do and obviously would have saved her life. And so, yeah, I felt that they were all pretty equally guilty in the sense that, you know, they all led to her death. That reminds me of a quote from Animal Farm by George Orwell. All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. So the kind of impression that you're giving from that explanation is that you, f- you feel that while some are probably more responsible than others, they all have to share the blame. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. Okay. That's a really good point. And uh, you are right. I do think that everyone but the Baroness is responsible as well. 
like both of you, I believe that the Baroness is the only one who isn't to blame because you should not ever blame the victim. You, you don't know anything about their personal life and even so, you don't blame them for being in a bad situation. You should really just try and help them get out of it. My rankings were obviously at number one was the Baron because ultimately he's the one who ordered her death and he was the one that put her in the situation as well where she felt like she had to get away. Number two, I'm also with Leslie with the guard who is the one who killed her. You're exactly right that so many atrocities happen because of the people who just blindly follow orders. And throughout history, there are many, many cases where people have stood up to the people giving the orders and said, no, this is wrong. We're not going to do it. Next, I actually had the two friends. I kind of think that the friends are more responsible than the stranger because they kind of have a personal connection to the Baroness. I think at number three, for me, it's the person who refused to go beyond her beliefs because she's got the evidence in front of her. She's obviously been badly abused. She's probably beaten and bruised, obviously hungry, needing somewhere to go, probably, you know, very close to death and just won't do anything because it's, it goes against what you believe. The next one is the friend who was too scared to help. In my opinion, if you really love someone or something, you'll always fight for it and you'll fight through the fear. So you shouldn't let fear be what drives whether or not you act. Next, I put the stranger who refused to help without the payment. I had him below the two friends because he doesn't have any personal connection to the Baroness. Ultimately, too, you don't know anything about the stranger's circumstances either. He could be afraid as well. He could be very poor and think, oh, well, I'm just going to end up in a worse situation if I do help you out and I get caught. So he's wanting a little bit of insurance. So I think that is understandable, especially with no personal connection. And um, in last place is the police officer, because ultimately he does have to uphold the law, but where he can see the evidence is when he'll act. I think it's a case of you're innocent until proven guilty, if that kind of makes sense. So he might have needed a bit more convincing. That was my ranking. Now, you're probably wondering why I got you to have a little bit of a think about this activity. It's because in any contentious situation, you can make a better decision if you can think about the different points of view of others. And so when you're weighing up the different options, you could actually visualize yourself. Is what I'm doing putting myself in the shoes of the friend who's refusing to go beyond their beliefs? Am I, you know, disregarding the evidence? Am I only doing this for financial gain? Or am I only doing this for my own gain instead of because it's the right thing to do? That would be putting yourself in the the case of the stranger. Or am I only doing these actions because they're what I'm told to do? That would be put in the case of the police officer. Whenever we talk about contentious issues, it's a good idea to just remember you don't know anything about the people that we're talking about, and we really shouldn't be making any judgment based on their life without realizing our actions can adversely affect other people as well. Yeah, I just think this is a very, very powerful activity, and it's definitely something you can always keep in your mind whenever you do have to make a judgment about something. But better yet, try not to make judgments about other people. And the reason I brought this up in this episode is because of just the level of judgment that is being placed on Diana in particular for becoming a sex worker. 
there is so much judgment placed on her just by society. The fact that prostitution is outlawed and the fact that everyone kind of treats anyone who does what they have to do to survive as being scum. There's the fact that there's pretty much nowhere for her to go to get any help. And I'm talking realistically. She she could get help if she was willing to take it on from those who offer it, but there's nowhere she can physically go to get any help. And ultimately, there's no protection. I do think that many of the kind of characters in this scenario do apply to society and to people in this episode. I think that's all I'll say before we get into a really deep debate about whether or not prostitution should be legalized. And I, I do know that, uh, that we all have very strong opinions one way or the other. Yeah, just never judge anybody for being in the situation that they're in because they're just doing what they need to be able to get by to survive and to try and get ahead. Agreed. I uh, I actually, I agree with you. Personally, I don't have a problem with prostitution. If somebody, if this is what someone's doing to earn a living safely, then who am I to pass judgment? That's, that's not my, that's not my position in life. I, it's not something I'm either capable or willing to do myself, but I also don't, I don't want to say everyone who's doing this is doing this just because he or she needs to do it, but I don't have a problem with it. All right. Do you have any thoughts you'd like to say, Zoe? I'm kind of torn about it because I've seen the negative effects of what prostitution does to people, people who wanted to be in it and people who were forced into it or had to do it to make a living. A lot of the scenarios that I saw, actually all of them, ended up with that person not coming out alive at the end. And I personally don't have very good views about it because of that, because in my experience, it's always led to the person not being safe and families being torn apart and people being hurt. But... I kind of agree with you guys at the same time that, you know, if somebody has absolutely no other choice and still needs to make a living and that's their avenue and they decide to do it on their own, that they have the right to do that. There's actually a a term for what you're going through at the moment, Zoe. It's called cognitive dissonance, when your personal beliefs are challenged by some evidence. So it is really good that through a little bit of conversation that you can try and make the most informed choice you can. It doesn't have to go mm-hmm. beyond, go against anybody's beliefs, but if you do find that somewhere along the way something might change your mind a little bit, then that's fine as well. I can talk from a slightly different perspective, actually. You've seen personally some of the very negative aspects. Where I live in Australia, which um, some flat earthers would have you believe doesn't exist, but we'll get to that <laughs> some other time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but over here, prostitution is legal in licensed brothels. Everything that is done has to be done with protection, condoms. And there are bouncers in all the brothels who are there to provide security. And pretty much everything that's done is negotiated before anything happens. I'm not speaking from experience, by the way. This is just common knowledge <laughs> over here. <laughs> I just thought I'd better point that out. But through the process of First of all, removing a lot of the stigma involved in prostitution. We don't even really call it that. It's more called sex workers or the sex industry. First of all, removing a lot of the stigma, first of all, helped the workers to advance a little bit. 
providing the security helps a lot. Making sure that contraceptives are used helps a lot. And ultimately, everyone who does join a brothel as a sex worker does so from their own free will. Everything's negotiated. There have been a lot of good effects. First of all, the number of reported rapes has gone down. The amount of violence has gone down. The divorce rate's gone down. There's been a a lot of positive effects that have happened from this. We don't have a lot of the problems that come from there being a black market. So you might not agree that anybody should be doing prostitution and you're entitled to that opinion. But at the same time, I have seen a lot of good come from removing a lot of the stigma, not putting judgment on people and ultimately trying your best to protect the people that are doing the job and also making sure that what they want happens. To have any kind of social change, it has to come from grassroots. So ultimately, if you want to improve a situation where sex workers are put in a lot of danger, then you ultimately start with them put them somewhere safer with some protection. And yeah, and we have seen also just the general happiness level of sex workers go up as well. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's like you said, it's not something that you have to take part in to be a proponent. Like I personally, I don't smoke marijuana, but I don't see the reason at this point, it's ridiculous for it to be illegal. I had a friend whose last two years of his life could have been made a lot more comfortable. He died of progressive MS. And his, the last two years of his life would have been a lot more comfortable had he found a doctor who would have allowed him to use it medicinally. But even recreationally, it's, it's the same thing. It's something that like prostitution profession itself was demonized. And that's why. And there's a downside to just about anything if it's done incorrectly. Yes, uh. definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that also. The thing with marijuana as well, so many other things that are so, do so much more damage and are so much worse for society, such as smoking and drinking, the amount of violence that comes about from people being drunk is unbelievable, and those things are legal. I think we can all just agree, each to their own, if you're not hurting anyone else, then just do what you need to do. Sounds like a pretty amicable discussion there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was a little worried too. about how it could go. <laughs> I, I was almost in the. I was almost in the in the the guise of the friend that was too scared to do anything. <laughs> uh, but I no, I like I like the scenario, and then I I like the exercise and where, where you went with it. That was well done. I enjoyed taking part in that. Fantastic. Well, hopefully we can have some more meaningful, very deep discussions when we decide to go quantum deep next time. I hope so. Okay. Well, that discussion actually went a lot better than I thought, but let's move on to a slightly nicer topic, especially a bit more towards Quantum Leap. We actually have a little bit of feedback from James G. Connolly. This is a reply to the massive Quantum Deep segment that Chris and I had in the Future Boy episode. Regarding the discussion about eight and a half weeks and the limbo state, the expression often used in the podcast is, you're not thinking fourth dimensionally. 
Also in this discussion, it is established or acknowledged that canon is derived from what is part of the television series, which excludes any other material such as novels and comics. With that, my question is as follows. Where in canon is it established that Sam experiences the time between leaps? I use the counter-argument, you're not thinking fourth-dimensionally. In Season 1, Episode 1, Al states that while the leap was instantaneous for Sam, back at the project, a week has passed. I don't remember if there was any mention of Sam being present for that week. Sam leaps instantaneously, yet time passes at a different rate at the project. Furthermore, the project, Ziggy, has no idea immediately where or when Sam has leapt until someone interviews the leapy. This would also add to the discrepancy. Maybe there is some form of relativity at work. Or maybe there is the time needed for the two points to converge. One of the aspects of time travel is that Earth is not in the same physical location. When Sam or Marty or Rufus or even Phineas travels back in time, the Earth isn't there. The more I think about this, the less time I have to think about it. This isn't the time to think about time as we don't have the time. Well, you've given me something to think about, James. You are correct that actually in nowhere in canon, it actually is established that Sam does experience the time between the leaps. In fact, I'd argue that he probably doesn't experience it because from his point of view, it's instantaneous. But the reason that I said time passes between the leaps is because of the fact that if he's injured in one leap, then as soon as he leaps, wherever he lands, he's fully healed again. So that does suggest to me that either the time has had to pass so that he actually does heal, or else the leaping process itself also has healing powers. So I'm more inclined to believe the non-magical version. But you actually brought up something that I hadn't considered, the fact that, as you state, time is relative. And the faster that you move towards the speed of light, the slower clocks go. And this has been proven. The atomic clock has been put up into space and sent very, very fast. And when it was brought back, that the clock was at an earlier time than had actually passed on the Earth. So yes, you are exactly right that time is relative and it passes at different rates. I guess it is possible that Sam actually doesn't experience the time between the leap, and maybe uh, it is completely instantaneous even for Sam. But I do still lean more towards the fact that because he has been healed during leaps, time probably has had to pass in order for him to heal. And I think with that, we've definitely gone down the rabbit hole far enough. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have any final thoughts about Private Dancer that either of you would like to say? Actually, yes. One of my favorite things about the episode is in seasons four and more so in season five, we see a lot less of. And of course, I adore the series, so I'm not demeaning it in any way, shape or form. But the scene where Sam is learning is teaching himself sign language. Sam is signing boring, and Al says, oh, I thought you ran out of Kleenex. He was about to go into some more details on the leap, and Sam says to him, 
what do you think this is? And he does the gesture and Al says, oh, it's the itsy weensy spider. And he says, no, it's quantum leap. <laughs> and it was that interchange between the two of them is so adorable because what I'm about to cite is not canon, but there has been fan fiction that has told the the story we didn't get to see, the Project Starbright story, the story behind how Sam and Al became friends. Little moments like this between the two of them are just so precious. I appreciate them more than I can even say because it's a reminder that shameless self-promotion, I kind of did this in the story that I wrote for the fan fiction contest, that the <laughs> two of them don't have time to talk to each other as friends, as dear friends. And it's something that I enjoyed a lot. You might be interested in comic book number 13, Leslie. It's called Waiting. Actually, no, it might not be 13. It might be 12. I actually yeah. bought it after you mentioned it. Yeah. You mentioned it in the series, didn't you? Yeah, I did a um, a segment pretty much all about paradoxes, and a lot of their discussion was about paradoxes, so I talked quite a lot about that in there. I think my very favorite part, again, with the relationship between Sam and Al, was how when Sam leaped in, Al was dancing and having a ball, and Sam was kind of like scandalized by it a little bit and al was like come on i'm having a party what's the matter with you <laughs> so i i enjoyed that little bit of adorableness as well and i agree with uh what leslie had to say that their dynamic is very adorable in this episode they really seem to be very close with one another and they have these little moments these little asides where they have these little cute things that happen and it brings a refreshing sweetness to the series that later on we don't start to see quite as often and it really brings something to the series that i think is cherishable for sure i know that i had a lot of bones to pick with this episode but it is a good episode and I still do enjoy it. I really don't believe that this episode could be done today. I think that a lot of people would possibly get offended by how judgmental it is. But having said that, we should never shy away from difficult issues, especially if we're commenting on something from the past from the point of view of us living in present day. All right. And... The next episode is Piano Man. Are uh, you excited about that? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That's another another really good episode. It's I guess you could I guess you could say it's on the lighter side, but of Definitely. course, anytime Scott sings is a it's it's a pleasure to listen to it and watch it. So mm -hmm. absolutely. All right. Well, that's probably a good place for us to leave it. I think we can say that this was a huge success. Yes, absolutely. So I think we'll be back. <laughs> I, th I, I don't think <laughs> Albie's going to fire us just yet. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> uh, okay, so until next time, Leapers. I'm Leslie. I have been Zoe. And I'm Hayden. And many's the time that we've all gathered around the piano wishing one of us knew how to play it. Don't wish it away, don't look at it like it's forever Between you and me, 
I could honestly say that things can only get better. While I'm away, dust out the demons inside, and it won't be long before you and me run to the place in our hearts where we hide. And I guess that's why they call it the blue. Time on my hands could be time spent with you, laughing like children, living like lovers, rolling like thunder under the covers. And I guess that's why they call it the You stare into space, picture my face in your hand. And therefore, each second, without hesitation, and never forget I'm your man. Wait on me, night if it hell and on the nail I simply love you more than I love life itself and I guess that's why they call it the blues time on my hands time spent with you Laughing like children, living like lovers, rolling like thunder under the covers. And I guess that's why they call it the Call it the blue. 
And I guess that's why they call it the blues And I guess that's why they call it the blues Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Hayden, Leslie, and Zoe, with contributions from Zoe Dean, Leslie Wenzel, Christopher D. Philippus, and Hayden McQueenie. Special thanks to Laura Harrington. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. This episode has been edited by Hayden, Chris, and Zoe. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Birch. Christopher D. Philippus, Juan Murrow, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap podcast is a Barren Space production. Take your time. Part out, right? (laughs) Now keep it all in. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, there was supposed to be some scenes where we'd see what it would have been like just from Diana's. Sorry. (laughs) Was that a a cat or a baby or what? (laughs) (laughs) That's my door. (laughs) Sorry. We're recording live from a haunted house. <laughs> we went from a laundromat to a haunted house. That is hysterical, guys, because I've been writing synopsis for my Roddy show in this. <laughs> I can't. I can't, guys. Okay. Oh, girl, I love it when you laugh. How many conversations have we had uh, like this? Okay, I am officially in a fixed position right now. You don't have to worry about me me screwing things up anymore. <laughs> I've got to stop using the same words. <laughs> how many, don't, take take a shot every time I say the word segue. You're going to end up in a coma. Um, on second third, on second thought, don't. <laughs> I do not. In, uh, I do not endorse um, uh, drinking games. <laughs> Hashtag no sponsor. Ow, <laughs>